0: And welcome to When We Were Young, a podcast devoted to our favorite pop culture from our formative years, roughly 1980 to 2000. In every episode, we take a look at a piece of pop culture from the past, discussing what it meant to us then, and then debating whether or not it still holds up now. Movies, music, TV, and more, we'll rip it all to fucking shreds if we have to. We'll have to. I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to give his panties to a geek.
1: I'm Becky, and I'm the host most likely to be the real-life female version of Ducky. Ducky.
2: And I am Seth, the host most likely to be a brownie hound. I don't even know what that reference was. <laughs> it's from Breakfast Club.
0: Okay, yeah, I don't know.
2: But... I watched and it. it was I such swear. A, and it was such a weird, like, who said it? Judd Nelson, John Bender. Oh, okay. And it was such a weird thing that I had to look up what the term brownie hound meant because well, I'm it? like, is that is that a gay term? Is that a well, what does it mean? It means a suck up, like a brown noser. Oh, oh. see, it only makes sense <laughs> if you Google it.
0: Okay, well, as you might have gleaned in this episode, we are revisiting the films of a man who had his finger on the pulse of the youth of America in the 1980s, but not in an illegal way.
2: (laughs) Yeah, where else was that finger going?
0: Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Uncle Buck, Weird Science, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. These are some films we will not be discussing this week, (laughs) because John Hughes was way too prolific for us to hope to cover his entire filmography in one podcast. Or even two podcasts. Uh,
1: it's a lot of movies. Yeah, we tried so that with Don Bluth, down.
0: and it was over two hours long. So if you guys at home really want the John Hughes Made in America eight-hour podcast, you can write in. But for or now, you can we... you go to
2: ESPN, <laughs> where they have the money for that kind of shit. Yeah,
0: they're, they're doing all these John Hughes uh,
2: that biographies Ken Burns. over there. Whatever, whatever.
0: <laughs> for now, we decided to hone in on John Hughes's star-making roles for the 80s Every Girl icon, Molly Ringwald.
1: Yeah, yeah Redheads. I dye my hair, it's fake. <laughs>
0: like, like all, I don't think redhead actually exists, because, like, every famous redhead, like Lucille Ball, that's the only one I have an example of, and <laughs> Becky, all dye their hair. Uh-huh, me and Lucy. Yep. You're in good company.
2: <laughs> a company of two.
0: As we were thinking about upcoming topics, we realized we had done a lot of 90s stuff, but kind of given the 80s short shrift, um, besides some of the Don Bluth movies, so... Um, We said, what's more 80s than Molly Ringwald?
1: It doesn't get more 80s than that.
0: Not really. We would also like to wish our listeners a Happy New Year, because in the future where you are listening to this, it is 2017.
2: You guys, don't don't let them peek behind the curtain. We're naked behind the curtain, Chris.
0: Seth is naked. (laughs) It's awkward.
2: Happy New Year! This is
0: what 2017 has done to us, is nudity, apparently.
2: I'm wearing a full parka. (laughs) Becky has enough clothes for the both of us.
0: Spread the wealth, you guys. What's going on here? Here's a mitten. Don't we believe in making things equal in
2: 2017? No. <laughs> I have a feeling. <laughs> Again, we're just casting our minds to the future, but I don't think that's going to be the case. So, um,
0: yes, Happy New Year! If we actually indeed make it, did make it to 2017. <laughs> I have my doubts, but. <laughs> Yes, and so our New Year's resolution is to get more reviews for iTunes. <laughs> that's that it. is the one resolution. We will be working hard all year on it's this. It's not
1: really something we can do, is it? It should be your resolution, audience.
0: That's true. That's true. We want to help people find this podcast, amongst all the many other podcasts that cover Don Bluth one week and Scream the next. <laughs> and uh, we want to let them know that it's a good podcast, or at least not a podcast that's horrible, that... But- you would give one star
1: Way to, to sell it, Chris.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, five-star reviews. For the text, just say, not the worst thing I've heard.
1: We'll take it. Yeah.
0: I think mostly we just want you to compliment us. We, we really just have egos that are fragile, and we need those reviews too.
2: But, but seriously, as far as the iTunes rankings go, if you enjoy the show and listen to this thing that we bring to you for free... Um, ranking it on iTunes, giving us five stars, and giving us a review with some words in it will we'll both help more people get to hear the show, uh, which in turn will help us get to make more episodes
1: of the show to bring to you. Counts as community service.
0: Yes, right now we only have one review, and I wrote it. So And I read it. <laughs> it was five stars, so I'm a pretty big fan of us. But um, um, Spoiler I, alert. I would like some non-podcast host reviews, so... Yes, Like
2: some non-us reviews.
0: Make that happen. And so I think we... I did not check with my co-hosts about this, but I would say that our first review, uh, we could have that person choose an upcoming topic for us, so...
1: They can suggest one. Yeah. Yeah, we can take it under Maybe we advisement. give them a
0: list of potential and they can select off of that list. Anyway, somehow you'll have some very crucial input into a future episode of the show.
2: Don't you feel enticed.
0: And on that note, I would like to... Um, Acknowledge something that I did this week. What was that? I listened to our podcast. <laughs> wow. Chris doesn't
1: like the sound of his own voice. I, however, listen to each podcast about three times. Because Becky I love loves the sound, the sound
0: of my voice. <laughs> she just can't get enough.
2: I just listen to recordings of my own voice separately from the podcast.
0: <laughs> he cuts the rest of us out and only listens to his own comments.
2: Yeah, if you wanna, there, you can subscribe to the Seth only version of when we were young. <laughs> it is very confusing.
0: Yeah, so I'm now super self conscious about all of my uh, many ticks. Not, not physical ticks. I'm not covered in ticks, but I have and many. And we don't
2: have a video version yet, so no one can see them. You <laughs> <Ew. laughs>
0: So um, I would like to just apologize to our listeners for the sound of my voice and the occasional scratching of ticks that you can hear.
2: And I would like to congratulate the listeners for the sound of my voice. <laughs>
0: But uh, yeah, I have to say, I like our podcast. I listen to it. I binge listen to it. I listen to it all. I'm glad
2: you approve of all wait, the work we've wait, been doing. Wait, but hold on. Does that then mean that you reviewed our show without having listened to it once?
0: Yeah, my first review was one star. And then I listened to it and I actually bumped it up to five stars. Because wow. it, it, it held up, you guys. Wow. Our own podcast held it up. It really
2: grew on you. Yeah.
0: So, in today's podcast, we are blasting back to the past, the high school portion of our past specifically, to revisit three of the most beloved teen movies of all time, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink, which are about three distinct teenage rites of passage, losing one's virginity, detention, and the prom, released in 1984, 85, and 86. In these years, Ronald Reagan was president. We all love Ron, don't we? (laughs) Set that one up just to make Seth groan. Uh, the PG-13 rating was created thanks to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. The Challenger exploded, Chernobyl happened, and the wreckage of the Titanic was found. <laughs> so, well,
2: Big year for Rex.
0: Everything was okay in Illinois, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, Haley's Comet passed, so I guess we mostly missed that. We were too young to appreciate it. <laughs>
1: I I would say yes.
0: (laughs) One of the most fun things about doing this podcast is that we get to know each other a little bit better because we don't always sit around just gabbing about our childhoods normally. Um, So
1: (laughs) We only talk about present things.
0: Yes. We stick specifically to today. Only things that happen today.
1: (laughs) If it happened yesterday, I don't want to hear about it. Is it happening right now? No? Then
2: I don't give a shit.
0: (laughs) So today, inspired by these films, I'm going to ask you, what was your first experience with blatantly racist Asian stereotypes?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think it was these movies, Chris.
0: (laughs) No, I'm kidding. My actual question is in honor of Pretty in Pink. uh, What was your prom experience like?
2: Well, so I kind of had two prom experiences. For the first, the kind of more official one, a lot of the people who are my closest friends, and of course I was part of the outcast group, a lot of my group of friends did not actually go to our official prom, but our official prom took place on a boat um, that was docked in the Mississippi River, like in the, fr- like in the French Quarter in New Orleans.
0: It wasn't even moving?
2: Um, well, it, it took a lap. Okay. Literally,
0: so the, the Across prom, the whole Mississippi. Yeah, no, we were, we went up <laughs> it to was the six-week prom,
2: wherever. <laughs> we went up to the source. We really got in touch with the roots of the river. Um, we dredged for gold. Uh, no, we. Uh, it just kind of took a brief trip. Uh, up river and then back down uh the the moving part of the experience was only about 30 minutes but i spent it completely sober uh ironically though i grew up in New orleans born and raised i did not drink at all until i came out to la never stopped since um but it was just a very it was a very boring relatively uh and just kind of inert experience it was just like let's take a Quick boat trip and then come back. A lot of other people like got super wrecked on it, um, but then at the end of that, uh, my other group of like the rest of my group of friends showed up and we all went and got sushi. So like it ended up being a fun night. Um, did you night, catch
0: the sushi off of the boat yourself?
2: Yeah, no, we did. Uh, we got the dresses that were longer from my friends and used that as a fish net. Uh, yeah, no, it was I don't know how they board. do
0: things in New Orleans because apparently
2: they bake babies into cakes. So. <laughs> They're not real babies, Chris. They are real cakes. Plastic. It doesn't make any sense. And then my other prom was uh, my, one of my best friends, Chelsea, who now lives out in L.A. She and I went to a gay prom that was for young high schoolers in New Orleans. And it was one of the first years that they'd ever done it. Um, it, too, was pretty lame. <laughs> but the spirit of it was much more welcoming and fun than the other one. Um, so, like, we didn't stay a super long time. We didn't dance a ton. But and it, that ended up being a pretty fun prom experience.
1: Well, I also went to two proms. Um, I was dating a senior when I was a sophomore. So I went to the, his prom with him. I don't really re- remember much except we had a limo because his parents had a limo uh, company so we just used one of the limos that his on company had. time. Yeah. yeah.
0: He was basically born to go to prom. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's what the license is like
0: plate that's, said. that's your perk for, the, for life. You, you, just keep going to prom, just stay in high school forever and Right. you'll make out.
1: I remember that I I we I mean I didn't drink in high school um at either prom or any other day at all. I didn't drink in high school at all, so that wasn't wasn't a thing. Um, that at least I experienced at his prom or my prom, and my prom was at you know some really nice country club on Long Island. Um, I don't remember much of it, but I remember we did rent a limo, not from my then ex-boyfriend's uh, parents. Um, we got cheated a, on him. We got a limo and we were supposed to go on a cruise around uh, the harbor in Manhattan. But when we got there and we walked off, we went onto the boat and we were like, we hate this. <laughs> it was like capsizing with like every prom like in New York state, like everyone, like it was just filled with all these teenagers. And we were like, we're gonna be trapped on this boat for like how many hours? And so we left the boat. We were like, fuck it. Um, just I think jumped we, off. I think we already paid for it, but we're like, we don't care. Like, it's not worth it. So we just went back into the into the limo. We went to Sbarro's in Times Square. and
2: <laughs> That's much better. Yeah,
1: and I, I remember being the like... The original
2: prom experience.
1: Yeah, I remember thinking... Other girls had changed into, like, after prom clothes. But I was like, I love my dress, and I spent a lot of money on it. And I'm going to wear it all... I'm going to wear it till I have to take it Everyone in Sbarro has to see this
2: dress. Becky's <laughs> so, actually still wearing her prom dress dress right so now. So it
1: was in Sparrow's wearing this wed- this wedding dress. <laughs> Not my wedding dress. <laughs> She's like I love this dress and
2: I'm going to keep wearing it until my wedding day. <laughs> she now has a closet full of this one dress.
1: <laughs> I still ha- I still have my prom dress and I fit into it still, so hell yeah. And I had lost 30 pounds that year, so I actually looked probably the best I've ever looked. Um and then uh, the day Except I- right now because he still
0: fit into it apparently.
1: <laughs> I still fit into it, but I don't look as good as I did. At the prom, but that's the next day after the prom is when I was like, "Let's just keep eating Sbarro's.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, was a ga-
0: it was a real gateway drug. <laughs> a lot of people, you know, have life-changing experiences on their prom, and yours was just Why eating too much pizza. Why doesn't the Surgeon
2: General ever talk about how proms lead to pizza? <laughs> well,
1: I'll tell you what we did. So after Sbarro's, we didn't. We had all night to that. Ha- we had this limo, so I remember we played the movie game, and we just drove around Long Island and just played the movie game. Uh, some of you may be familiar with that is, but it's just...
0: We will acquaint um, <laughs> you one of these days.
1: Um, Something that me and Chris played a lot of in college. And we didn't drink because nobody in my limo was a drinking type. And that's literally what we did. And it was really fun. And I don't really remember much of the country club part. But I remember when I was there, I was just like, why in movies are proms in gyms? <laughs> like, that's such a... Like, at Carrie and, like, I don't know, She's All That and, like, some mm-hmm. other um proms so it's like a thing that it's in your gym but i was just like i've never even heard of a prom being in a gym yeah
0: i mistakenly believed that all proms were always in gyms i think <laughs> for a long time
1: was your prom was, no were it either wasn't your prom but your i proms thought it was in, like, going nice to be. places right yeah yeah
0: yeah so i guess i'll lead into talking about my experience is um i did not think i was going to have a date for the prom um Although my senior year, I remember I actually had better luck with school dances than I normally did. They normally I went with groups of friends, but um, one of my best friends, Nicole, was dating a guy, and his older sister wanted to go with us. So I ended up taking his older sister, who was twenty-one, who was right yeah. at the right at the cutoff of the age that was even allowed at the prom. I think yeah. it was like you could only be up to twenty-one. The cusp of a woman. So she was a very nice-looking young lady. <laughs> that's convincing, Chris. Yeah,
2: it's not even convincing. Describing it 15 years after the.
1: Fact. Her boobs felt like sand. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: romance.
0: No, I mean there was there was absolutely no romantic thing between us at all. I mean, that that's a can of worms, but <laughs> but there was no pretense of that because she was just like our friend's sister and so we all just went the four of us and had a really good time but it was kind of cool because she was like the the older like hot blonde that no one knew at the prom so i felt good about myself and you know Mm -hmm. it didn't quite go the way that it does for john hughes characters but it it wasn't too far off so that was a good experience and
2: gyms and proms at gyms aside like what stuck out to me is never understanding why in all of these movies, and it wasn't just John Hughes movies, so many movies of the 80s and 90s, why prom was such a vaunted thing, like why it seemed like such an important milestone for people. It was never like that in any stage of my life.
0: Yeah, I don't know if people were really that invested in the prom. Maybe some people were, but I think I, I know what kind of people we all are, and we weren't the kind of people who see ourselves as peaking in high school. I mean, maybe no one actually sees themselves that way, but there are those types of people for whom high school is kind of a pinnacle of an experience. And I think we all were looking forward to bigger and better things. Well,
1: you can definitely tell why movies would choose The Prom as something where a lot of climactic things happen, because it's your last thing Before you go out into the real world and it's your first big, you know, dance where you're dressed up and you are supposed to look like adults, you know, like wearing tuxes or wearing fancy dresses and you get your hair done. And it's like really the first time that happens in your life. And I feel like in a movie it makes sense if you're talking about high schoolers and moving on to the next phase, it makes sense for things to happen at a prom because it's this big culmination of the year and of your childhood. I guess
2: I can see that, but I don't know how it would be different than like a graduation or something.
1: Yeah, well, like, I think also graduations are part of that in movies. But um, in real life, I think I was expecting the prom to be this big thing. But when I went to my prom, I didn't have a boyfriend. I went with my friend and I didn't drink. It's not like, And, you know, I wasn't going to lose my virginity that night because I went with my friend. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We went to Sbarro's. Like, it was not going to happen that night, guys. But, like, nothing was really... Yeah, it didn't... It just felt like a really fun night with my friends and nothing, like, more than that.
0: Yeah, that's kind of how mine was, too. And then, like you guys, I also had two prom experiences because I went back the year after my freshman year in college uh, just, again, with a friend. But this time I had the perspective of having been in college for a year and realizing high school is not... The end all be all and had it probably even more fun just because I was able to like not care about any like how I looked or who else was around and just, you know, had a good time like dancing and having fun with with friends. So, yeah, prom, have fun, but don't don't put too much steak into it, <laughs> literally or figuratively.
2: <laughs> I drove a car full of stakes to my prom. OK.
0: <laughs> so in our last episode, we talked a lot about Kevin Williamson, who was the creator of Scream and Dawson's Creek. And who kind of became the 90s version of John Hughes, I would say, but in a more self, self-referential self way. Um, his movies are basically John Hughes movies where one of the teenagers is a homicidal lunatic.
1: And more stylized. Yeah. I mean, John Hughes is stylized in his own way, but it's more uh, exaggerated reality, I think, for Kevin Williamson. Whereas John Hughes, and we'll get to it, was more interested, I think, in capturing something really true about teenagers.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, like the both both of them did kind of make up their own dialogue a lot, or mm-hmm. they make up their own slang terms and stuff, and had very influential ways of writing dialogue. Um, and there was even an episode of Dawson's Creek called "Detention" that pays loving homage to The Breakfast Club, uh, the seventh episode of the series, which was actually my first experience with The Breakfast Club, so it was confusing. John Hughes was hugely influential as a director and especially as a writer. Judd Apatow, Diablo Cody, and Dan Harmon are just a few famous writers who cite him as a major influence, but pretty much anyone who works with comedy and teenagers would probably say John Hughes had some effect on them. And you can definitely hear the fondness that a lot of actors uh, who worked with him have for him. Um, Teen films first became a thing as teenagers were becoming more autonomous in the 1950s. You saw teen stars like Annette Funicello and James Dean. But when we think of modern teen movies we grew up with in the 90s, I think when we look at those films, they are the ones that are definitely influenced by John Hughes. You can really see the through line from the 80s to the 90s. Um, John Hughes thought previous teen films were aimed at adult men who just wanted to ogle the teen girls in the shower. So he was, like Becky just said, trying to get at something a little bit more true, um, focusing on smaller, more relatable stories. And in that sense, he found the perfect star in Molly Ringwald. So Molly Ringwald was from Sacramento. Her first acting role was as the Dormouse in Alice in Wonderland at the age of five on stage.
2: Aww. Aww.
0: <laughs> she would be a cute little Dormouse. Uh, She had fairly little film acting experience when she was cast as Sam in Sixteen Candles, although she was already a Golden Globe nominee. For what? Uh, She was in a version of The Tempest. She started as Miranda.
2: Interesting. Yeah. She was such a Miranda.
0: (laughs) Well, she did have red hair. Legend has it that John Hughes picked her photo out of a pile of headshots and put it on a bulletin board above his word processor while writing 16 candles. Word processor. Well. <laughs> I know. I was thinking of just saying computer, but I was like, no, I'm going to leave it true to the story.
1: I had a word processor growing up. I don't know. <laughs> That's the end of that story. <laughs>
0: wow. I really feel like I know you now, Becky. In- <laughs> I don't know what a word processor is exactly. It's well, like
1: a t- it's like so a typewriter meets a computer. It's like an, it was like an electronic so it's a computer. <laughs> no,
2: it was like an it was a computer, but a very rudimentary one. But it one. only did like.
1: But it didn't have a separate
2: screen. Like there was no separate monitor. You didn't have like an operating system. It's like if Microsoft Word took the form of yeah, a, an electronic just, yeah. keyboard. That's all.
0: In 1984, John Hughes, a former Playboy writer and ad man, had written hits like National Lampoon's Vacation and Mr. Mom already, and he was ready for his time in the director's chair. So he decided to write a film you could make cheaply in one location, so he wrote a script called Detention that he budgeted at $750,000. Can you guess what it was about?
1: I think it was the plot of The Breakfast Club.
0: <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> And at the time, he cast John Cusack in the role of Bender and Virginia Madsen as one of the females. I guess he hadn't decided yet. and it's just like, <laughs> she'll do. Um, but that version of the movie never happened, of course, because Hughes was suddenly given $6 million to direct Sixteen Candles instead. And that became his first movie. And that was a more ambitious project, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about. But there's a lot more locations and a lot a lot of bigger set pieces.
1: So he wrote that, though, Sixteen Candles. mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he had written both, and that was just kind of out there. Oh, okay. And I think his agent had showed it to someone, but he didn't think that that was going to happen as his directorial debut. So he consciously wrote something that he thought he could make a lot cheaper and then ended up being like, oops, I get, I guess I get to direct the expensive one.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow, interesting.
0: So we all know that turned out pretty well for Molly Ringwald. <laughs> uh, when you think of 80s stars, I think, I mean, there's a lot of them, and she was lumped in with the Brat Pack that also included Emilio, Estevez, Rob Lowe, Demi Moore, um, and pretty much everyone in The Breakfast Club. But um, I think she's kind of the one that really stands out as being, like, super 80s, and in a way, like, only the 80s. Like, she really embodies these this kind of midpoint of the 80s. And she's not someone that we associate with a lot of other roles, unlike, you know, Demi Moore, uh, Rob Lowe. Like, we know what happened to them. Molly, not, not necessarily quite so much.
1: Yeah, she, like, she had, like, a one, two, three punch with these three movies that came out one after the other. And then I know that she kept getting work, but it's like she just disappeared in a way because none of the other roles and none of the other movies, like, were hits. Or really, you know, hit pop culture or had any lasting power. So it's almost like she lives in this little cocoon of 1984 to 86, and that's it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's named as the number one teen star on VH1's list of greatest teen stars. Uh, Breakfast Club is named the best teen movie ever by Entertainment Weekly, and yet, yeah, it's this very brief period. It's really just these three roles. She definitely had many more credits, and a couple more were teen movies, at least sort of. But it's really these are the three movies, and. They just cemented her, and it's pretty great that she could be, like, the number one teen star off of just three movies in three years.
2: But it's also interesting in that she hasn't really had a late career resurgence. There hasn't been any, like, indie director who's been like, I've written this script just for you, Molly Ringwald, like, come do this movie with me, like... Rob Lowe got Parks and Recreation, and like really has mm-hmm. his, his career has bloomed again because of that. And Demi Moore um, got Ashton Kutcher. So. and Demi Moore got Ashton Kutcher.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Isn't she like forty something now? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, there's still time. And I know Winona Winona Ryder had a you know longer career, but she did have a slump, and then Stranger Things brought her back this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very a very deliberate casting to put Winona Ryder in this a uh, show that was very clearly inspired by the 80s. So I'm wondering, like, maybe it will happen for Molly. Season
0: two of Stranger Things with Molly Ringwald. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd watch it. I'm on board. So, uh, yeah, let's let's talk about what your experience is with specifically these movies, maybe a bit of general John Hughes and especially Molly Ringwald.
1: Well, you know what? I was born in 1983. Um, so I, whenever I think of these movies, I actually really think of them as being my older sister's movies. It was a little bit, um, you know, I was like a baby or a toddler when these movies came out and they do have staying power, but I think because I wasn't old enough to appreciate them when they first came out that I kind of missed the boat. Um, before this podcast, I had seen only the breakfast club. And I think only like twice before, um, I hung out with a bunch of people in high school that were obsessed with John Hughes and obsessed with the breakfast club specifically. And I just never like got it. Um, I think I watched it with them, but I never like really got why they liked it so much. Um, I'll get into that later, but I, I see it now.
0: How much older is your sister? My sister's
1: four years older than me. Okay. Um, and as far as John Hughes, I can't remember when Ferris Bueller came out, but that was my movie. Um, that was the movie that, I remember watching it when I was little and then I was old enough to actually get how great it is. I was the person that showed Ferris Bueller to all my friends when I was like, you haven't seen Ferris Bueller. You're coming over my house today after school. We're going to watch Ferris Bueller. Um, So that was the pinnacle of John Hughes for me. And obviously I've seen like Home Alone and Uncle Buck and all those. But as far as like the greatest uh, John Hughes is Ferris Bueller. And I watched it again recently and I it's still amazing. I love it. Well,
0: you're you're spoiling our podcast on Ferris Bueller <laughs> from the future.
1: Yeah. So I mean, I I never really had besides Ferris Bueller, I didn't really have like a connection to John Hughes in a in a meaningful way. Which mm-hmm. I think is atypical. I think a lot of people actually do. So
2: Thanks for that, Ferris, Becky. (laughs) Weirdly, I, too, was first brought into the universe through Ferris Bueller. Basically, all my family, like, folks on both sides of my family, relatives of mine of basically all ages, absolutely lost their shit over that movie. So I've seen Ferris Bueller, basically, at every stage of my life from real, like, kid, like, eight or nine onward. And I totally agree with you. Like, the spirit and the humor of that movie... Definitely transcend the 80s-ness. I definitely didn't see any Molly Ringwald movies until I went to college. At USC, I had the opportunity to, they gave us like a short list of maybe 15 or 20 movies. uh, And we had to write a paper in one of our film classes about two of those movies. Um, So I wrote uh, an essay that was comparing and contrasting Pretty in Pink with Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Oh my
0: God, can I read that paper?
2: (laughs) Um, You certainly can. Um, and that was my first Molly Ringwald experience and yeah, like we'll, we'll get into my reactions to that movie later, but yeah, it was definitely a late entrant into, uh, John Hughes and specifically into the Molly Ringwald stuff. And I didn't see breakfast club fully. I've seen bits and parts of it, but I didn't see the full thing until getting ready for this.
0: Yeah, I have even less connection to this <laughs> than you guys do because I had not seen a single one of these movies before uh, a couple weeks ago when I was watching them for this podcast. So
1: all you knew about Molly Ringwald was maybe just, like, the myth, the legend. Exactly. It <laughs> was just, like, what you know from pop culture... Let me tell you a know, tale of iconography the ...iconography of the, Ringwald. the 80s.
0: And yet I feel like I knew her fairly well, which is, I think, one of the weird things about Molly Ringwald is that she seems almost more prolific than she was. And I think even... People our age I think know her even if they haven't seen these movies and I'm not sure exactly why she became such a legend but yeah I I knew I mean not a lot about her personally but I was very familiar with her even before seeing these movies and I the only one of these films I'd seen any bit of was The Breakfast Club on like TBS or something on weekends but that was only fragments of it. I'd never seen the whole movie all the way through so I really had no connection and even more so than not seeing these three movies is I've Barely seen any of the John Hughes movies, which includes I have never seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
1: Oh my god!
0: So apparently, Becky has not done her job as a friend because she You're showed all of her over
1: fight. after school, and we're gonna watch it. What?
0: I've never seen it, no. I'm,
2: oh my God. I'm not even like on cable, not even on accident. Like how do you I don't understand how that movie is avoidable.
1: How have I known you fifteen years and we've never watched that movie?
2: I don't
0: know. But we've only known each other for about six months because I'm a young person. Right, we're
1: very young.
2: I'm we're sticking only eight to that. Years old. We've now given out our birth years. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're also very young and we want you to know
1: that.
0: <laughs> um Yeah, no, I just like uh like
1: what have you seen of John Hughes? Home Alone.
0: I've seen Home Alone. He wrote that, obviously, right. didn't direct it. I've seen Uncle Buck.
2: I've seen planes, trains, and automobiles.
0: No. I I saw a couple of his later films, like the '90s ones that we'll get into that are not okay. particularly good wow. or memorable. Well, I'm
1: glad we did this podcast because that's three more that you've seen.
0: I always knew of John Hughes from, I knew that he did The Breakfast Club and those kinds of movies. I did not know that he was even involved. I don't think I even knew that he did Ferris Bueller, to be honest. wow. Uh, And researching what he did in the 90s, I had no idea he had done those movies that, well, I guess we'll get into at the end. But yeah, so I, I had just seen some of Ferris Bueller on TV, like The Breakfast Club, but I have not really seen hardly any of these movies all the way through. I think I saw Weird Science, actually, randomly. All right, so let's get into uh, the first of these movies, which is 16 Candles.
2: It's a brand new year. I'm 16. Everything should be platinum. I should be happy, right? Right? Yeah. Well, I can't get happy. It is physically impossible for me to get happy.
1: Would you feel better if you knew one of my secrets, or?
2: Don't gross me out. No, we're not talking gross here. No, it's just... This information cannot leave this room, okay? It would devastate my reputation as a dude.
1: No problem. <clears throat> I've never bagged a babe. I'm not a stud. <laughs> it
0: was released on May fourth, nineteen eighty four. It cost six point five million to make and earned twenty three point seven million at the box office. Uh, other 1984 teen films are Revenge of the Nerds, Footloose, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Karate Kid. So that's kind of where teenagers were All
2: right.
0: in the movies. So, uh, Becky, could you sum up the plot of Sixteen Candles for us?
1: <laughs> the F word is said a lot.
0: <laughs> that's not a plot, but okay.
2: <laughs> Frankincense?
1: Which F word? Um, the, the plot of Sixteen Candles is that um, a teenage girl, Molly Ringwald, turns 16 and her family forgets her birthday. Yeah. And so it's mostly takes place over the course of a day where she writes one of those uh, little notes to her friend detailing you know things that she thinks about her crush. Her crush gets that note. Um, and it's kind of about him finding uh, who this girl is that uh, wrote these things about him. The crush finds this note written by this kind of mystery girl. He kind of knows who she is, but doesn't really know who she is she has to deal with you know crushes and school and nerds and her family um and her sister getting married and at the same time there's this nerd anthony michael hall plays i mean we could get we could go really specific in the plot but it's pretty much just a a day a day and a half in the life of a bunch of different uh high schoolers in different like social classes and kind of how they all uh get together
0: yeah, totally. And the movie was reviewed pretty well on Metacritic it has a sixty one, so that's basically at the very bottom end of being the best uh best category of rating, which is the green ratings. Ooh.
1: Um,
0: which is go see it. Um yeah, and Ebert gave it three stars, so he was a fan. Ebert's an important critic, I think, for John Hughes movies because he's from the same area that John Hughes is, so uh Chicago. Yep.
2: The Chicagoland region.
0: Yes. So yeah, this movie... Becky did a good job of summing up the plot, even though the movie is very, I would say, plotless in a lot of ways. Yes. It it's meandering. It kicks off with the idea of the birthday, and I would say that is more or less forgotten throughout most of the movie. I mean, they yeah. come back to it, but it's not that the movie really revolves around that. In fact, the same movie could basically happen if that didn't happen. It's just kind of a jumping-off
1: point. It's a. It shows the audience that this girl is... You know, not even respected really by her own family, and that's kind of her internal turmoil is that she lacks a lot of confidence.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a plot that you end up seeing on a lot of sitcoms. It feels like a very sitcom tropey plot because it does have about enough juice to sustain a half an hour. And as I think, as John Hughes discovered when writing this movie, it doesn't really carry an entire movie on that plot alone. So
2: well, and also I think a hallmark. And for me, actually, a thing that I tend to enjoy more in John Hughes movies than not is it's not that it's plotlessness, but that the plot always takes a backseat to the characters and what they're going through and what they're trying to understand. Absolutely,
0: yeah. So, I don't know, maybe we should just get to the uh, Asian (laughs) elephant in the room?
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, seriously. Well, you know what,
1: before we say that, I want to say good things. And And I enjoyed watching this movie. I think it's definitely flawed. Um, and this is a movie I hadn't seen before. Um, I I think that John Hughes really gives legitimacy and respect to the problems of teenagers. And that's why his movies are memorable and last, you know, last outside of the 80s that you can watch this and still be like, yeah, I feel that way or I go through that. And he's really great at building a world of teenagers that is both realistic and stylized. It's just a little bit more exaggerated than reality. But the things that they're feeling are true and and he doesn't
2: inherently patronize what they're no, feeling. Like, no. I feel, I, I, do, I so totally agree with that. Like, other writers and directors have taken that to different places and maybe, or more nuanced places since then uh, in other characters. But But I really think that, like, John Hughes was a definitive break from the kinds of movies about teenagers that even when they, like, would address their emotional inner lives, they would, like... Kind of, it would be a laugh point, you know, mm-hmm. or it would not be the centerpiece of how the movie progresses.
1: Yeah, you're seeing, and then this goes for all of his movies, yeah. and these three we're going to talk about that I feel this way that he's looking at it from their perspective and from a teenager's perspective. When your crush finds out you like them, like that really is like horrifying. And those are real feelings that you're feeling. And there's nobody in these movies that's just eye rolling and saying, oh, aren't teenagers the worst? Like he really does uh, care about how they feel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think these films do have appropriate stakes. I mean, they are technically low stakes, but because when you're a teenager, those kinds of things are your entire world, and they feel like the biggest thing in the world. I think that the films do really capture that. Um, John Hughes was a conservative Republican who... Really? Yes, who did not socialize a lot um, in Hollywood, even though he became very famous. Uh, I did a lot of research on him. Even though he...
2: was working
0: constantly throughout the 80s and 90s. He stayed in Illinois for most of that time. He moved to L.A. for a while and then moved back because he just didn't like liberal Hollywood. He didn't like socializing with a lot of people. And he was known for being very youthful, I guess, in his perspective. And that really shows through his writing. He was very sensitive, and he had a hard time taking criticism like he eventually kind of fell out with Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall because they didn't they were became so famous that they couldn't be in all of his movies, and he took that rejection personally, mm. so in a lot of ways, I feel like he was a te- an adult teenager, mm. and that these emotions were not just something he was channeling from his past, but in many ways were things that he was still feeling and I think that's why he's so good at capturing those things is he was still by all accounts that I read about was still feeling these same ways even in his adult life, which you know, caused a lot of problems for him, I think personally and in his career, but um, at least made movies like this iconic.
1: Yeah, I can believe that because he chose to talk, he chose to write about kids and teenagers pretty mm-hmm. much exclusively.
0: Yeah, and he he really saw himself as someone who could champion kids. And the reason a lot of his movies end happily, we'll probably delve into the specific endings, um, but is because he felt that teenagers deserved a happy ending, that life doesn't necessarily give you a happy ending, but he wanted the kids who liked his movies to experience that and kind of have that hopefulness. Yes, and uh, I think this movie is also really interesting as a who's who because you see a lot of mm-hmm. fun cameos. Uh, Joan Cusack. Oh yeah,
1: and yes. John Cusack and John, and John Cusack. Cusack. Both yeah, the Cusacks. Babies, yes. babies.
0: We also get Jamie Gertz from Twister in a scene. Oh, yeah. Did you guys see her? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> from our first episode, it's all coming first. Oh man,
2: there's another
1: cameo that I can't wait
0: to drop <laughs> oh, on you. Oh yeah, that's the next <laughs> movie. Yeah, that's.
1: The, that's <laughs> a oh, but few this movies. one has Zelda Rubenstein too. Yes, I okay. love seeing Zelda. What is she Rubenstein? doing there? What is the woman from? poltergeist doing in she's this movie she's the organist
2: I but don't does she not even like, have like a there's point there's not a single second where she plays the organ in that movie
1: but like she she doesn't like what wait, did, Becky. wait. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> becky's <laughs> having an aneurysm when
1: did poltergeist come out
0: 82 i'm pretty so sure
1: So what is the zelda very...
2: rubenstein was writing a star she was writing a rocket ship to super but that stardom. character wasn't even didn't do anything <laughs> That doesn't matter. All right.
0: Well, when you're a very, very short old woman in 1980s Hollywood, you probably don't get a lot of work. But so... she was a,
1: a huge hit the year before, and then all of a sudden she's and has, so they're, like, a throwaway So they've that... cast
0: her as the lead in 16 Candles? <laughs> they
1: shouldn't have cast the, that part. 84 have been in it.
0: Candles? Like. <laughs>
1: I was I was so flabbergasted, and I was like, "What is she doing here? And where is she now? She's gone. Why was she here for like a line?" No, I had to.
2: I literally had to look up like, "Why is Zelda (laughs) Rubenstein in this movie?" It
1: was so strange.
2: It is
0: strange. There's a lot of strange.
1: There's a lot of strange in this movie. Yeah.
0: Um. I would note that it's strange to see breasts in this movie. Oh yeah. Oh, that would not be there Like close up just of breasts, and I was like, "Whoa, that is not what I was." Oh, and the crotch
1: shot. Do you remember that? I don't. What, oh wait, no, that was Breakfast <laughs> Club. Okay, okay, we'll get there. But yeah, a lot of like, like, uh, that don't would spoil not, it, Becky. Save the crotch not, for later. That like, what is it? The nude shot of Jake's girlfriend when yeah. they're they're looking over at her, uh-huh. like looking it's at very,
0: it, very gratuitous, like compl- the most gratuitous
1: yeah, of like a high Like I'm sure that girl wasn't a high she school was older, student, yeah, but like the character is a high school student. We're yeah. seeing completely naked, and that's
0: just not something you see in a PG-13 film aimed at teens today. And this. I mean, I think, again, John Hughes was a bit of an immature person and definitely had that side to him.
2: See, if anything, though, and we'll segue immediately from this into the horrible things about this movie, Um, I like that John Hughes, as a writer and as a director, allowed his characters to be horrible. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, He allowed them to be immature little shits. He allowed them to be like in the case of Anthony Michael Hall's character in this, and then also in the case of Ducky, like pretty unaware of how the seduction game works and completely unaware of how the things that they think are come-ons to ladies will affect actual ladies that they try them on. I don't it, it, know
0: that John Hughes is always aware of those things either, though. I think sometimes I, he is aware, and sometimes I, I'm, I think it's a well, little tone-deaf.
2: He may well have been very... I think he's very tone-deaf in a lot of ways, and I think that may be right. Um, I think this is one way, though, in which that kind of fits some of his characters. Um, and I think that is an aspect that would absolutely be whitewashed to non-existence by studio notes now.
0: So one of the things that we always try and look at when we're examining past movies is, you know, h- how it holds up today in terms of is it racist, is it sexist, is it homophobic? And we've yes, 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 yes. all of them in this movie. This is our first movie that Yucky. checks off
2: all of those boxes. I don't even
1: know what to talk about with the Asian stereotypes. Honestly, it's, I mean, what can you even say?
2: Um, no, let's let's go point by point because it's it's pretty incredible. So yeah. Long Duck Dong. Is a foreign exchange student. He says, "What nationality does he say?" He China, hits? I think. Chinese.
0: Well, they call him a Chinaman, so I assume he's but, from China. Oh, but... you don't?
2: Yeah, I think his the, kid, yeah, the kid brother of Molly Ringwald calls him calls Long Duc Dong Chinaman. Um, Long Duc Dong itself is a Vietnamese name. <laughs> They introduce him and accompany his presence in different scenes with uh, gong sound effects yeah. and Japanese style music. All of that stuff being yeah. Japanese, and yeah, so it's there. It's not just that it's a barrel of stereotypes, but it's an incoherent jumble of stereotypes and. It it gets so it even gets so much worse than that. Like one thing, because this was the first time I've seen this movie. One moment that really stood out to me as being beyond just tone-deafness to just really like cruelly shittily racist, uh, is at the school dance, Long Duck Dong's character finds love with this very tall giantess mm-hmm. of a woman. And in the moment where they're slow dancing together. You can barely see it, and I don't know if y'all noticed, but there is a bit of noodle on his face.
1: No, I didn't see that.
2: There is very clearly a bit of, like, ramen noodle on Long Duck Dong's face. There's no reason given for it, and if you don't, like, really see it, and I had to rewind and, like, watch the scene a couple times Uh to see it. It's... It's unmistakable that that's what it is. And oh, I don't know if that means that, that like that someone made John Hughes cut out the noodle eating scene, but like it's it's I still haven't seen Breakfast at Tiffany's for the reason that oh, I don't want to yeah, see it's bad. that like I don't want to see Mickey Rooney doing literal yellow face. Um I made myself watch the rest of this movie but there were a couple points where I was like I don't know how much more of this I want to watch yeah
1: the problem I mean there's a huge problem with his character but part of it is he doesn't even need to be in this movie like what purpose does he serve other than he's comic relief
0: it's very random and it doesn't even it doesn't make a lot of sense Even in the plot of this movie, I don't think him coming in. They're going to their sister's wedding. I mean,
1: but the day before, they have a foreign exchange student.
0: Yeah, it just it doesn't fit in that plot whatsoever. No, it doesn't, and
1: that's what. Besides all the racist things about him, like he's so random, it just feels like here's an extra thing that it's funny to laugh at foreign people.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, and even like his other, like I was saying, like with a lot of his other characters, I like that it's not as plot heavy. That he does take time to investigate what does this person want. What is the thing that this person needs in their life? Like, and Long Duck Dong doesn't even really have that. He just has this like tall Brunhilde Hilda woman who dominates him, and he loves it.
1: He just wants to party,
2: but yeah, like, like it, there's yeah. there's no reason for him to be in this movie. No, and it just it just comes off as so cruel on every level. Yeah, life.
1: it br- it does bring the movie down. I I think I I do like this movie. I think it's as I said flawed, but I think that character it just weighs it down so much.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I will say that the performer is pretty good and make, goes a long way toward making that character likable. And there are moments when I want to like that character and
2: And then and then he comes in with the changing out R's for L shit. Like it's yeah. every yeah. time it gets close to being something that's unique and, and even funny, like it, just another like shitty racist bomb gets dropped in the punch bowl.
0: I really think it's the gong sound that is the most like blatantly offensive part of it. I think this would play at least twice as good if just there was a gongless edition of this movie and yeah. they just stripped that out of there because that's just like it's not just once, it's every time he appears on screen there is a gong sound yeah. and it's just apart from it being offensive is it's also just a really weird Choice to make as a director to like it—it's so obvious. There's a lot of weird, other weird music cues in this movie. There's there Twilight other... Zone, oh, yeah. Dragnet, like all of those all right. things. Some
1: of that's fun, I think.
0: I it adds it, like personality out of the movie. It doesn't hold up now. And I think that it really, un- I mean, it might be better in a different kind of movie. Which I mean, the long duck dong parts of this are about as broad as a comedy can go, but. The Molly Ringwald of this movie is not a broad comedy. It's a very nuanced comedy. So there's these that's weird true. styles at war. Even It's not really Molly Ringwald scenes that have those weird things usually. It's like, her scenes are very yeah. grounded. And then she's like, those are like spliced into this movie that's really broad and feels a lot more honestly like a lot of comedies that come out today. And, you know, you still see a lot of racial stereotypes there is um the character Dong in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt that a lot of people have trouble with and it's definitely not as problematic as this almost nothing is as problematic as this No this is about
2: Well as and bad even as it at gets. least in Kimmy Schmidt uh there's a lot of comedy based around poking fun at the things about him that are stereotypical. Yeah, they subvert a lot. And making fun of the stereotypes themselves.
0: But they also make fun of um, people's cultural cluelessness around him as well. And that's a lot more of an equal opportunity, like making fun of pretty much every kind of person there is. Um, So I I do think that we still have a long way to go in pop culture with treating Asian people better and not as stereotypical. But yeah, this... it, It was... Shocking, honestly, to see something from not that long ago, about 30 years ago, being this blatantly
2: racist. I was just, I was honestly shocked when I watched this movie. It it was legitimately shocking. Like, it's hard to surprise me.
1: I think one thing that does make me feel better is that John Hughes did not invent this. Like, there have been racist... Asian stereotypes in movies for a while. Like, that
2: does make me
0: feel better. It, there's racism everywhere. I just, I
1: mean, it's not like he <laughs> comes from a long, no, I long line. I of think shit a lot was. of like Hollywood and a lot of you know, there, there's, you know, it was a, it was a thing that was in movies. It wasn't just this movie, and I think that goes the same for. I mean, a faggot. Like that's, yep. that's a yeah. lot in. Oh, that's a lot in. It's at least once, if not more, in his movies. But it also was in other movies. I remember I watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure recently. Um, which is great. Um, but they do like there's one moment where they like hug each other and then they look at each other and they're like fag <laughs> Um and it was just like Whoa 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 like yeah. the rest of this movie like totally holds up and like could have been released today except for that moment and there was a lot of that in all three of these movies.
0: Yeah, um, definitely. And also the word retarded, which is Yeah. Not I think is more recently considered offensive, but yeah, a lot of those those are things that I definitely heard people say when I was a teenager in school yeah. and stuff. So it is authentic to teen dialogue, but it's also not something that you would necessarily put in a movie because it's not commented on. It's not necessarily treated as something that's not a good thing to say. It's kind of just part of their everyday conversation.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I when I look at the movies that we talk about on this podcast and I think, like, one day would I show my kids this movie? Would they be able to relate to it? A lot of these movies, yes. And I think a lot of these... John Hughes movies, yes, for the most part, but it does give me pause to have kids in these movies nonchalantly call each other fag um, because that's not something that I would want my kids one day to do and think that's okay because they're watching a movie from a time in history where that was considered okay.
2: Also, there's another thing in this that... uh, There are a lot of other kind of insensitive things a lot of other tone deaf things there's a really casual reference to date rape oh Oh, yeah Yeah, i wrote it down we're getting into that um i have a whole section on that let's go right into the the date rape section
1: uh uh, i wrote yikes rape comment from jake passed out cold could violate her 10 times (laughs) oh yeah
2: like it's it's oh lord (laughs) on the nose and yeah. We're it,
1: supposed to like this guy. Right. I yeah. did not that's, like this yeah, guy.
2: That's, that's it. Like I ended up coming away like really disgusted with him. Yeah, I did not like
1: um,
0: him. Um well it's and I think Anthony Michael Hall's character is just as bad because he goes along with it. He's not someone who comments negatively on it. And basically the entire third act of this movie is based around us cheering for Anthony Michael Hall to date-rape this girl, or at least, you know, she's she's very drunk, he's not drunk, so it's really not a yeah. consensual sex oh, scenario, have, no matter what's going on there, and it's...
2: And I have, we're supposed to cheer for that. And, and at the top of the prom, Molly Ringwald and her friend go in, and the line that they say is, let's make ourselves available. And it was, like, the the weirdest, like, framing of that, it's a little thing, but it was just so tone-deaf, especially after I saw the rest of the scene.
1: Yeah, I, I wrote down in notes, uh, jake put his passed out drunk girlfriend into a car of an unlicensed driver who she doesn't know and we're supposed to be okay with this like all of this was just so skeevy to me where i'm like oh god everyone sucks and
2: when they wake up the next day she's like she's the one who's like trying to make it okay he's like i guess we had a good time
1: right yeah neither
0: of them can remember if they even had sex but i think they suggest that they did
1: yeah, and they suggested that that they
2: had it. sex, and like he asked her like if she liked it. Yeah, and she it was said, well, like imagine
0: waking. You are this girl. You think your boyfriend is whatever. You're you know a nice guy, and instead you wake up. He put you in a car with someone that you don't know, and apparently you had sex with them. And the next day you're like, well, I guess that happened. Like,
1: oh yeah.
0: It's it's really disappointing, and also I I think it speaks to the big weakness of this movie in terms of the writing. And I think this happens a little too often with John Hughes is that you can tell that he identifies with this Anthony Michael Hall character. That's really the surrogate Mm -hmm. for him in these movies or in the third movie, it's Ducky, you know, but there's always kind of a, the nerdy guy who wants to get the hot girl.
1: Underdog kind of guy.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's a trope in a lot of teen movies, um, past and, and future, but these ones have a kind of a seedy side to them where it actually does happen and it happens in a creepy way and yet and and this again isn't something that's certainly not just in these teen movies but that sex is a reward like women are treated as a prize and that it's just it's a conquest and it
2: sex is a reward for men
0: yes exactly we'll,
2: yeah. we'll get into let's, and the let's women into... are the prize
0: they they don't have any agency in that i think it's this movie i can't remember but he says he's never bagged a babe and it's just Just that kind of language, it's very one sided. And it's this strange juxtaposition because I think John Hughes writes female characters that Molly Ringwald played really well. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's just her, but he also is really tone deaf as to a lot of female issues in these movies, not so much with her characters, but. Every other female character in this movie, like the older sister, also has her period and takes Valium.
1: She takes like muscle relaxers, and she's ask she's acting like she's on LSD.
0: Yeah, and (laughs) like it was so
1: strange.
0: (laughs) And she's just making a total ass of herself, and that feels a little bit misogynistic to me as well. She's a lot like the drunk girl in the car, and they yeah they are just women acting ridiculous, but also in a kind of weirdly sexual way. I can't remember exactly what the sister does, but I feel like she does some... She's just
1: really strange walking down the aisle and inappropriate. And it is coming from like a misogynistic place because it's like, oh, this woman got her period. She's crazy. This is what happens when you bleed. Well, but it's also
2: like that character is so... It's not even undercooked. She's like uncooked. Yeah. It's like a raw... That was, right. like, a first draft of a character. Like, she has no agency. You'd have no idea. You. It's clear that she doesn't love the person she's marrying. It's not clear why sh- they're actually getting married. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's a lot of the other characters, I think, like Chris says, are kind of tinsel around the centerpiece of Molly Ringwald.
0: Yeah, I think Hughes definitely identifies with the f- female surrogate character, like, Molly Ringwald for him as well. But in response, he makes every other female just a horrible monster basically to maybe counterpoint
1: hysterical. It. Maybe hysterical. Yeah. word makes, it's
2: like hysteria. Maybe yeah. it
1: makes her seem more like an outsider because she's not this crazy, hysterical woman and she is very real that Maybe I don't. I'm trying to think of like why write it so broad, but why? Like, how many contradictions? Yeah, like Molly Ringwald is very grounded and real, and we care about her, and she's kind of normal, but everyone else is crazy and broad. So I wonder if that was deliberate.
0: Yeah, I just, it's disappointing that Molly Ringwald disappears basically from the entire second half of this movie. She's not, she doesn't really have a lot to do. And it, it just feels like Hughes got carried away with the character that he identified with more and this idea of oh, I want to see the geek get the girl. And that takes over the third act of this movie. And I think it's too bad because I think the better movie is the one about Molly Ringwald. right? And that's a lot more grounded. And yeah, it's a, it's just gross.
1: Can we, okay. I have a legitimate question. What is the moral of this movie? I did not know when it ended, like what.
0: <laughs> Date rape is okay. Like,
1: Was the moral that, that As popular racism. guy. Could like a normal girl that isn't like, you know, popular and and gorgeous. Like, is that it?
2: We should move on to the next movie because this is a question that I'm not gonna stop asking.
1: Like (laughs) what the moral of these movies.
2: It's like what is what are we supposed to take from it?
0: Yeah, I mean overall I would say this is just a movie with great moments interspersed with moments I hate that are cringeworthy. (laughs) So it's it's really a difficult watch. I mean there's at one point, Anthony Michael Hall turns to the camera and says, this is getting good. And its I think that's clear evidence that like John Hughes has taken over the movie and is just speaking through this character and has kind of lost the point of what he was trying to do. So I think the moral is that he forgot and he just wanted a hot scene in a car It was a wishful fulfillment.
1: Well, let's move on to The Breakfast Club. Yes. So plot of The Breakfast Club is...
0: I would say the plot of The Breakfast Club is five kids get detention, and it's hijinks, and that's it.
1: No, I would say, but they're from different social classes in high school, and so it's five people from different backgrounds being forced to spend time together and get to know each other. Yeah. Look, I'm not going to
2: discuss my private life with total strangers. It's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? What? Well, if you say you haven't, you're a prude. If you say you have, you're a slut. It's a trap. You want to, but you can't. Then when you do, you wish you didn't, right? Wrong. Or are
1: you a tease? Sex is your weapon. You said it yourself. You use it to get respect. No, I never said that. She twisted my words around. Why don't you just answer the question? Be honest, no big deal. Yeah, answer it. Just answer the question, Claire. Talk to us. Come on, answer, answer the question. Come on, it's right? easy. It's only one question.
0: No! I never did it! So The Breakfast Club was released in February 1985. It was budgeted at just $1 million and made $51 million, uh, wow. worldwide. So it I'm sure did... it's made
1: more than that by now because um, it's now a cult hit.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah, yes. I wonder
1: how much it's made
2: like with video and everything. Uh,
0: other 1985 teen films were Back to the Future, Ooh. Seen Almost Fire, and Teen Wolf. And oh, wow. Ebert gave this movie three stars as well. Mm. Although Variety was very harsh, saying that the movie was so bad it would make your brain rot.
1: Who's laughing now, Variety? <laughs>
2: The I think Praxy Variety
0: is still doing okay, too.
2: <laughs> Do they have a shingle about that? Is there a shingle on the sky of the Prexy?
0: So yeah, I mean, this is not just an iconic movie, but maybe, like, the iconic <laughs> yes. movie. Like, yeah. this is just it. When you, you know? think
1: of movies and you think of the 80s, The Breakfast Club is probably the one you think of most, if not, like, Back to the Future. Like, it's probably The Breakfast Club.
0: Don't you. Yeah, I mean, that song alone. Oh, yeah. I you know what song that is. It makes me nostalgic, and i never seen this movie, but I was just like, (laughs) oh, this song. (laughs) No, that's
2: so funny. That's so funny. I literally had, like, that, like, whatever that unnameable emotion of nostalgia is, like, I had that feeling even just hearing the song Mm -hmm. and, like, seeing it over Mm -hmm. the credits and not having seen this whole movie the whole way through.
0: Yeah, I don't even know where I first heard that song and yet it definitely felt iconic to me yeah um, and I love how the movie starts uh, with that David Bowie quote also. Is it makes it feel very epic.
1: <laughs> it was a little much with the glass shattering, I gotta say. That I was mean, it announced beginning. it. It's <laughs> like,
0: this is the movie, guys. This is the movie. Uh, I love the glass shattering just because it, it really is. The movie is about these barriers breaking down yeah, between these but... people.
2: <laughs> is it? Is that a metaphor? I
0: figured it out, you guys. I've cracked the code. And, uh... Slight fun fact is that Ali Sheedy is the one who suggested that quote to John Hughes, so oh. you can thank her for that. Sheedy facts. I don't think she suggested the glass breaking, <laughs> In this movie, also, I guess we didn't mention that Molly Ringwald actually was 16 in 16 Candles, unlike yes. a lot of the co-stars um, in this movie. Judd Nelson was 25, Emilio Estevez was 22, Ali Sheedy was 22, so Anthony Michael Hall was the only one who was around her age. He was 16, but... The other people are this age, and I think maybe that's why Molly Ringwald is so relatable in a lot of ways, as we believe her as a teenager. I Definitely.
1: I think she's such a great find, honestly. Yeah. In Sixteen Candles, she plays an unpopular, nerdy, not a horribly unliked person at her high school, but somebody who people look down upon in The Breakfast Club, she pretty much looks exactly the same and now she's a popular girl or a person that is in the popular crowd and gets invited to the parties and wears makeup and, you know, Like gets maybe dates. the most
2: popular. Yeah, no, yeah. like superlatively and, slow. And, so. I,
1: and I think that is honestly, like, amazing that she could look exactly the same but play awkward in one movie and then the next movie be a popular girl without having to you know change really in any way because you you could totally see that girl in your high school and it could go either way honestly yeah
0: i think more of us were people who were like that character in 16 candles who were just like kind of awkward and not very popular and you probably felt less popular than you even were but you weren't the kind of people who were being beat up every day but you still feel you feel like you were that character but you were just kind of a general outcast and I think she does a really good job of selling that end of things and then And it almost speaks to the arbitrariness of high school that the same girl could basically be the queen of the school or an outcast just based on kind of random external factors. Yeah. And not
1: to like spend too much time on her appearance, but like her red hair and she's kind of have, she kind of has like big teeth in a way. And like, she's just, she's not super skinny. She's not big. And just, I think like the casting of her, and I don't know if it was John Hughes specifically or the casting directors for it, but like whoever found her, like I think she's such a catch and she's such a natural actress.
0: Yeah, well, so a fun fact about this movie is that she, John Hughes originally wanted her for the Ali Sheedy character and it was Molly Ringwald who wanted to play Claire, although she also changed the character's name. I can't remember what it was before, but she didn't like that name, so she changed the name to Claire and also had input on her clothing as well. So I think Molly Ringwald maybe was a bit of a diva, but also probably had good instincts with these things because the character, I think the character is great in this movie. And and I
2: just want to briefly amplify like Becky's point. Like, I think she is a tremendous actor. Yeah, from a super young age like the acting that she does just in stairs both in like when she's staring at people and when she's intentionally I thought knocked. you meant
0: on stairs and I was yeah. very confused her <laughs> stair work is incredible yep. she, she walks up them she walks down them she's good
2: the work that she does uh, as an actor both when she's like staring at people like when she's uh talking to bender and stuff and they have that kind of flirtation with each other but also when she's like intentionally looking away from people and like the Mm -hmm. like literally and even just in her eyes like the acting that she's doing is really like advanced level and conveys exactly her like inner emotional state with no words at all and I think that's a thing, I think that is a, a talent and a gift that she brought to John Hughes's movies that goes way over and above what John Hughes brought to John Hughes' movies.
0: Yeah, I almost shudder to think what would have happened if he had cast her as Ali Sheedy and who he would have cast in this character otherwise, because we saw in Sixteen Candles that his vision of popular girls mm-hmm. was not so sympathetic. And if you didn't really identify with each and every single one of these five, if there was even one of these characters who just kind of came off like a stereotypical bitch, I don't think this movie would work. I think it only works if you really can love each of these five people. And Yes,
1: yeah. totally agree.
0: I don't know that very many other actresses could have done that, but because we already had this relationship with Molly Ringwald from the last movie and already could see her in a vulnerable way, I think that helped a lot in this popular girl princess character.
1: So I, I really like this movie, and I remember, as I said, I watched it when I was in high school, didn't really get anything out of it. I watched it as an adult, and I kind of was blown away that it was like a play. Mm-hmm. And it was really well-written, exactly
2: yeah. and mm-hmm. and
1: even though there are like moments that I think don't work today or maybe didn't work then, um, I think in general this holds up tremendously and is just really entertaining, and I really do like every single person, and maybe in the beginning I don't like them, but by the end of the movie I do.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the restraint that John Hughes felt of trying to make a movie that was cheap and set in one location really made him step up his game in terms of writing and there isn't a lot going on in this movie plot wise. It's mostly just kids hanging out and there's a bit of like running around the school but mostly I mean the best scenes I think are just the people sitting around Mm -hmm. talking and sharing their feelings sitting completely still basically there's so
1: many good monologues in this movie
2: there's so many good monologues also it's like John Hughes does a thing in the writing of this that I don't really see in his other movies which is that he turns the shittiness of his characters into a weapon against them Mm -hmm. um, to force them to actually open themselves up to themselves Emilio Estevez plays like the jock uh, quarterback, kind of that kind of um, high schooler. And he's forced to reckon in this movie with literally, like, specifically that he's bullied Anthony Michael Hall's character, who's the geek, but also forced to reckon with the fact that he's become like this father that he's always hated. Like, that is a deep thing that does not get addressed really almost anywhere, much less in like teen movies. Um, it really, it was very impressive to me, like, to kind of watch the whole thing the whole way through. Um, I totally agree with you that it's a lot like a play, but, like, in the way that saying it's like a play is usually a bad thing with movies, Mm -hmm. like... It really works to its benefit for me.
0: Yeah, I love even just the intro of all the kids arriving with their parents Mm -hmm. in the car or Bender, you know, walking by himself. And all of that says so much about each one of those characters. It's a brilliant opening and a more conventional opening. Maybe if the movie had a higher budget would have been to just see them with their friends. And this movie makes me really curious to see like who these friends are that they're talking about because I I really want to see that. And yet I think it was really smart to not show that and just show them all in isolation. And we really don't see them in the context that they see they have previously seen each other.
1: I like that we don't see them. I do too, I think yeah. it's good that you want to see them, but Absolutely. I think it's good that we don't.
2: Should we kind of break down the other characters?
1: Yeah, there's... Ali Sheedy plays, like, the weird girl. Um, you know, she wears black and she doesn't talk or she squeaks, and I had a lot of she friends... She has a hood and disappears in the hood. I had a lot of friends in high school who definitely <laughs> probably related to her most because they thought they were weird. They... I mean, obviously, the only other girl is Molly, and they... Uh, Did not see themselves as popular or pretending to be popular. Like they wanted to be the weird chick, Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's Ali Sheedy. Emilio Estevez is the jock, Um, and these are all just like what they come in with. And by the end of the movie, they're so much more than that. Um, Yeah.
2: Anthony Michael Hall is the geek, um, and he's kind of freaking out because he's gotten a. An F in shop class, which is his only bad grade ever, and he's, it becomes like an existential crisis for him.
0: Judd Nelson is Bender, the who's called the criminal in the movie, but he's basically the burnout, the mm-hmm. troublemaker, the one who you would most likely find in detention probably every week.
1: I do want to talk about the fact that Judd Nelson looks like a 47-year-old man in this movie. <laughs> he I, is too
2: old. I think yeah. Judd Nelson came out of the womb middle-aged. <laughs> Uh, like but, there were
1: there were moments in this movie. where There was a close up, and I was like, "Does he have like wrinkles?" <laughs> like <I> he <laughs> was only twenty
2: five. I, but, think he has I mean, that
1: so
0: he was almost he was like eight years older than he Molly Ringwald. He was eight Ringwald. years
1: older than Molly yeah. But it, like, I was just like, "Why is there a forty five year old man
2: with them?" In no, it's it's interesting. I feel like I mean, obviously, a lot more younger people get cast in young people roles now. But I definitely think that was one that like. That actually strained credulity for me too. Yeah. Um, I loved his performance in it. No, he was and, great.
1: It was just yeah. the way that he looks. So I was he, like, "Are you kidding me?" No, no,
2: <laughs> I was really like, "Are you?" You guys, it could have
0: been Nicolas Cage. He read for the movie. <laughs> as oh my did God. Uh, Sean Penn and Rob Lowe. Un-make I just want Nicolas film. Cage
1: in every role. I want
0: Nicolas Cage in <laughs> the this, Molly of Ringwald movie,
1: of this movie, all five, <laughs> and the principal, and the janitor.
0: And John Q- John Cusack was originally cast as Bender, so that might have been better because he actually was. Very young at yeah. the time too. We Precious saw him thought in- he
1: would have been done great. Yeah. He's a great actor.
0: Yeah. So in this movie there was originally a peephole scene where Aww. the boys looked in at a sexy gym teacher and they had even cast the gym teacher. And of My course, God. we saw her breasts. And it was Ali Sheedy and Molly Ringwald who basically brought it up to John Hughes. There was like they were they just said that was sexist and kind of gross and that he should uh, Yeah, yeah slow applauding. clap for <laughs> Molly. And and I'm not farting rhythmically. I'm clapping.
1: <laughs> and yet there's a shot where Judd Nelson is under the table and gets a shot of Molly Ringgold's panties. Oh,
0: yeah. That's what you were talking and about. And
1: I was like, oh, sure. that was strange.
0: Yeah, that, that was strange. <laughs> it was a little gross, but at least I can buy it from that character in a way. I
2: whereas, can totally yeah, buy
1: it from that character. and pushing also pushing his
2: face into her crotch. No, but also Molly gives him a lot of shit for having done it.
1: Just to see it, though, was shocking.
2: <laughs>
0: Although she does end up with him in yeah. the end, right? So then that, that's, that be, that's when it becomes a little problematic.
2: Well, no, but see, like, going back to what I was saying about her acting, I knew from the first moment they started looking at each other what they actually felt. If you look at just literally just her facial expressions, because all of her dialogue is about how much of a brute he is, how much she hates him, like, the first look she gives to him is like a, oh, I like you look. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's consistent and like once you I'll have to look for that. I no, I think she like did a really subtle, really good job of establishing that attraction between them. Um, I think it's just because he is so obviously older <laughs> that it kind of <laughs> creeps you out.
0: One of the big questions I had from this movie is why is this library so enormous?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice school. It's a nice. Look, school. they really respect reading.
0: So what I found out is that it was actually a gymnasium because <laughs> <laughs> they rented out a high school and i don't know why they didn't use maybe it was a normal size library right was and, there a prom
2: going on in the library
0: <laughs> they wanted a lot of space so they converted this gymnasium into a library wow. and that's why it is so gigantic it's the
2: biggest library. i just ever. thought it was a
1: rich school honestly yeah that i thought it
2: was just a private school it was crazy
1: wow i want to bring up a moment where um so one of the things is that anthony michael hall's character had brought a gun to school Mm-hmm. And all yeah. he got was detention. <laughs>
2: well, no, but let's no, but let's unpack that a bit. Okay. So, because I I had to rewatch the scene to really get the full picture of what was going on. So, so Anthony Michael Hall was taking a shop class. I think because he was trying to like. Pat his college resume or something? He thought it would be easy. Oh, because he thought it would be easy. That's right. Because only
0: stupid people take shop.
2: Right. So he got an F on this project where instead of using his gigantic brain, he had to use his hands to build something. Um, So he got an F on that project. He brought, what he brought to school was actually a flare gun.
1: But it was still, people thought it was a gun.
2: I know. but, But the reason why he got detention is that he shot it off in his locker. And so if anything, it would have just been like, oh, you brought a firework to school and set it off. Like, because that's what a flare is. Flares don't explode; they just get bright and fly.
1: Right, but it was shaped like a gun. What I'm saying you is, would today, get today yeah. you'd oh, go you'd, to
2: jail. You'd get arrested. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd get be arrested. arrested. Now.
1: You yeah. wouldn't. You wouldn't just have detention on a Saturday. Well,
2: Molly
0: Ringwald's character. This was cut out of the movie, but she got detention because she stole a driver's ed car that had two steering wheels <gasps> and went to McDonald's, and then they were both were eating their food and forgot to be the one that was driving, and they crashed their car. <laughs> so.
1: <laughs> So they never give her a thing in the movie no. of why she's in detention?
0: No, I think that was just cut
2: out. I'm so sad oh. that was cut out. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I always wanted That's to funny. steal a driver's ed car and drive with the wrong steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> and just like go go up to people and be like I'm in England. Ha, ha.
1: That's Drive hilarious.
0: Away. Did you also notice that there was a Confederate flag in the library?
1: I didn't Which notice. Is what?
0: Very strange for a library in Stars Chicago. And
1: Mars? I did not it notice really that. It's really strange. It's when
0: they're wow. yeah, when they're all running around.
2: Is John Hughes, a Civil War reenactor.
1: So let's talk about the makeover at the end.
0: <laughs> no. Okay. If we have to. <laughs> if we have to.
1: Um. Yeah. <laughs> I don't is that know. It? <laughs> I don't. Okay. I think I would have liked. Ali Sheedy's makeover a little bit more if then Ali Sheedy, like, made over Molly Ringwald and made her, like, a little bit more, like, freaky. Mm -hmm. Um, Or she, like, they switched clothes or something like that. So that it's like, you see how I am and now I'm seeing how you're, you know, like, they're kind of trading versus you're pretty now.
0: (laughs) Right, because there was nothing particularly wrong with Ali Sheedy's look, I think, in the beginning. I mean, she looks kind of dark and edgy, but... It's not a bad look. She doesn't need a makeover, like her hair is horrible and...
1: She doesn't need to wear makeup. It was just so, I've, again, the, like this, there's problems in these movies where they're so nuanced and then they're not.
0: Yeah, well, and it's okay. usually at the end that they're just not in a lot of ways.
1: Well, so, okay, I, I, there are a couple
2: different ways to see this. Because um, when I watched the movie, I definitely was very put off by it. Because um, it reminded me of, like, seeing Grease. Uh-huh, and yeah. when Olivia Newton-John is like, well, really I'm something. a slut They're, now, yeah. let's get into a car that flies.
0: And that doesn't work either.
2: That never works. <laughs> I didn't so, mean the
0: car, I meant Grease, the ending of Grease, but also flying So, cars. I mean,
2: like, the question of whether she sells out, like, she, um, Ali Sheedy's character lets Molly put makeup on her. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily a whole lifestyle commitment that she's doing. She isn't necessarily changing her whole life. And they have a conversation about it is that she's letting Molly do that because that's what Molly wants to do. And they've now made this friend connection with each other. Ali Sheedy's character being that total outcast, and Molly being like the most popular girl. As part of that friendship, that's what Ali Sheedy lets her do. But that's not necessarily changing who she is as a person. But then the other thing I thought about is that there's a, char- a conversation that happens earlier in the movie where Molly and some of the other characters are talking about how women use sex as a weapon. And through that lens, to me it becomes clearer that Ali Sheedy is just doing that to make Emilio Estevez's character see her in a different light. So I can, I can definitely see it that way. And emotionally, that was the way that I responded to it watching the movie. I was mm-hmm. like, what the fuck are you doing, Ally Sheedy? Like, you're dressed like a wedding cake and, <laughs> and there's no reason to be getting rid of your uh, raccoon eye makeup because it looks awesome. But I can also see a case to be made that like she was doing this as an act of friendship with Molly Ringwald or also to like use her wiles to like dominate the jock.
0: I don't know. I yeah. can agree with you that it's okay that she let Molly Ringwald give her the makeover, but the way it ends with where it's basically Emilio Estevez just looks at her and his heart, his eyes turn to hearts, and he How just they, becomes like a coyote, did they like even flirt in the movie, he has
1: sexy eyes. woman. Did they flirt in the movie? Yeah, they, yeah. Did they? I guess I can't remember. Well, it's but not, if not like felt- overt
2: flirting, but it's like the again, like a lot of the kind of. Their attractions to each other. Like, a lot of that happens just in glances.
1: It just felt so random to me. It was like, I didn't even think it was up for discussion that she needed to change her look. I think it was more like, let's all learn about each other. But all of a sudden, at the end, she needs to change her look. And now she's kissing this guy. Like, it just felt like I didn't think that was what her arc was.
0: No, I mean, all of the characters get to open up about themselves, but they don't change themselves. They might change some of their biases, but they don't change who they are, except for her. She's... Basically, the end of the movie is that she needs to be a different person in order to
2: get this guy. And but that's, that's a little... but she's not being a different person. She's wearing a different outer shell. But she's she's being very different than she was but in but the beginning what of the movie. It,
1: that's what it is. I mean, that's what you'd say the same thing for Sandy and Greece. She changes into a, a cat suit and crazy hair. And then she conforms everything's you know, conforms more
0: I mean? to what men want to see and it's she's i feel like that but the question outfit,
2: but the question is whether she's doing that to conform to men or whether she's using that as a weapon to specifically bag this job i don't I, see enough evidence i, of I don't that.
1: i didn't get that i got that the movie is saying she's better now like this
0: yeah i mean if he, I kid,
1: if he kissed her while she was still worth you know, wearing the black shirt and, like, her hair was, like, the same. Like, I just felt like that would have been more like, he's accepting her, how she came in. Um, but now right. it's like he on- people only accept her if she looks like everyone else yeah why
0: is it on her to change she came into that room being who she was you know that was the way she wanted to present herself and yet she had to change that in order to get a guy like why can't he change be the one who changes his perception sure. to see what's beautiful see what's what beautiful mean. is that she's an authentic person who you know he
2: actually likes but and not the exterior of her. and I think the fact that it ends on that is what makes it so Yeah. I mean that's
1: that's what the movie is saying. If if it extended beyond that then we'd get more of a picture. But
0: both of the romances at the end feel a bit arbitrary. Yeah and poor
1: Anthony Michael Hall's all alone. I know they leave him to write the
0: paper for them. (laughs) No,
1: but see
2: see I saw that No, but I saw that as an empowering thing too because he was the nerd who thought he didn't need anyone and in the end he kind of becomes the voice of the group. He's Good for student. him. He gets to <laughs> sit home,
0: do everyone's work, and not get laid.
2: No, but but he loves doing that. Like he even like gives himself a little tiny punch. Of, like that's what he loves to do. He loves nothing more than to, you know, show off his knowledge, show off how smart. And I know yeah. it was just it was just
1: funny that everyone paired up but him.
0: I know, yeah. I mean... No, he, that's true. He, I did like that like, little punch, and I do really like Anthony Michael Hall in these movies, think yeah. he's very endearing, he's despite really endearing. some of the problematic writing choices. Yeah. No, I think he's
1: a great actor. Um, he's a great actor. Um, but, really yeah,
0: it's a weird message to send at the end of the movie that it's... Like, that he's happy that he gets to do all of the cooler kids' homework while they get to go off and... Apparently, fall in love and have a good time.
1: Like, wouldn't have, not that everyone needed to be paired off, but wouldn't it have been amazing if Emilio Estevez's character stayed and he was like, you know what, I'm gonna ride it.
0: Yeah, and Ali Sheedy, and I would buy Ali Sheedy and Anthony Michael Hall as a couple way more than.
2: Or
1: even Ali Sheedy and Molly Ringwald being friends and Mm -hmm. they go off together to be friends.
2: One thing that didn't happen that I wish would have happened is, because again, not having seen this movie all the way through before, I kind of wanted Emilio Estevez's character to be gay. Yeah, I mean... That's not going to happen in a John Hughes movie. No, it's definitely not going to happen in a John Hughes joint. Um, But
0: Also, joints don't happen. Don't call it a joint. That's illegal.
2: (laughs) I don't know, because there was... I I felt like... Uh, Emilio Estevez's character and the arc that he goes through is kind of a repudiation of the patriarchal heteronormative thing. And then in the end of the movie, it like all becomes completely reconfirmed for him. Um, and so I did, I was actually kind of sad that like Anthony Michael Hall didn't end up with him. Cause I, I, I don't know, like just obviously in the, in the distance of time that's passed since that was made, of course, things are treated very different culturally and mm-hmm. also in terms of what can be portrayed in movies. I don't know if you would portray a budding gay romance in a movie about high schoolers ever. John Hughes wouldn't. Maybe, yeah. maybe no, now he definitely would. definitely wouldn't. I don't, I don't not know. Not
1: then, but now maybe.
0: Yeah. Um, and just so you know, Ali Sheedy was against that ending from the start. She did not want to do it. And well, uh, I'm with her. you,
1: Ali Sheedy.
0: I'm an ally of Ally. And she hated that... Uh, outfit too she did not think that, the that, that was the
2: pink shit that yeah. she had to wear lace on lace on lace
0: so i think one line from this movie that's important to point out is ali sheedy's uh, when you grow up your heart dies just because i think that really speaks to how john hughes views adulthood and we haven't talked about the vice principal in this movie but he's basically a pretty one note villain in this movie and
1: he represents adults
0: yeah and he was based on a real principle that John Hughes had. You can tell. Yeah. <laughs> John Hughes is taking his anger out and I think that yeah. happens in a lot of these movies is that he definitely picks side and picks sides and he's on the side specifically of characters like Anthony Michael Hall, but he really I think hates adults and hates adulthood and that really comes through here because all of these characters' problems stem from their parents. And I mean, it's interesting that these Actors were became known as the Brat Pack just because in these movies, they're actually the most mature ones and the ones who are deserving of attention. And it's the adults who are, um...
2: Really brats? Yeah, like, they're, really yeah. yeah, one note. Total just, brats.
0: And, um, I, I don't know, I kind of likened this movie to a horror movie in a lot of ways because it's about these characters being trapped in one location mm-hmm. and <laughs> up against, you know, a villain of sorts... But like the real demons that they're facing are their own personal demons. But it's they overcome these demons, and you know there's a lot of strife and tears along the way. But it feel it felt a lot like a horror movie to me, and, and in that sense, that adults in horror movies are often the ones who are getting their kids killed by being neg- negligent, especially in the '80s, like a Nightmare on Elm Street. So I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting comparison. That
2: it is really, and there are even some kind of horror movie trope moments. Like there's. Whenever they're, like, roaming the halls, the vice principal's, like, seemingly around every corner, like, just narrowly missing them. Um, Yeah, I was kind of surprised there weren't, like, jump scares. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, I guess I just wanted to ask you guys, like, who would you say is the MVP of this movie? Which actor or character?
1: I like them all, honestly. I think they all have their moments.
2: Like we were saying, like, the, the strength of each of them, I think the power is in the ensemble. But I also think that if it... If there were any other individuals in that ensemble, that it might not have worked nearly as well.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that we're not picking out a single individual. I I lean toward either Molly Ringwald or Ali Sheedy. And yet I think the other five are all pretty great too. So
2: I mean, I I wanna bring up a thing that um was really touching to me, actually, that no one's talked about yet, which is Anthony Michael Hall's like emotional breakdown. Um and it happens after they've all uh taken the weed out of Judd Nelson's locker and gotten stoned and they've really started opening up to each other. And Anthony Michael Hollick has a real emotional breakdown um, and talks about how like after this experience, once they're all done with detention, that he really wants to be a friend to each of them no matter what anyone in any of their respective and very separate groups would think or say about that. Um, and, I mean, like, he cries in that scene, and it really, like, it was really touching because it really felt genuine, and, like, it culminates in him saying, like, well, I would never, like, turn away from y'all. I wouldn't do that. That would just be, like, a really shitty thing to do, and I hope you all feel the same way. Um, and, yeah, so, like, he he was kind of an MVP for me, at least in that moment.
0: That's true, and I think, again, that's the surrogate for John Hughes, and I think that's the way John Hughes feels, is that he still kind of holds all this in his heart and he's still kind of fighting for teenagers even though I don't think he sees other people with him on that I think that's maybe why the other characters do say oh tomorrow we'll probably all go back to our own friends and ignore each other and it'll be like this never happened and it's it's really sad I think and I think that sadness this is really the only John Hughes movie that can be called a drama it's like a 12 angry men. It's this contained story. It's five angry teens, you know, (laughs) and something about those restraints allowed him to write in a way that I don't think he, he gets a lot of credit for being emotionally honest. And I think he is at least in these three movies that we're talking about. And yet there's all this artificial stuff around them that drag those movies down or those, um, even in this movie to an extent, I think the ending drags it down of the, the happy ending. But Underneath that is very typical for comedians, that underlying sadness. And I think this is the movie that didn't have the rest of the distractions around there and really lets that sadness come through a lot more than his other movies make it clear. And I do find this movie very transgressive in a lot of ways, even though in some ways it revels in cliche more than any other movie. But it also, the way that it breaks them down, it does feel uncomfortable in a way you don't even in teen movies now you there's a lot more nuance I guess in in certain ways but you don't really deal with these social strata in the same way I mean it's always very superficial and this one really it has them and it really holds them up on a pedestal but then also tears them down and you don't see that done in such an interesting and I mean Psychological way, this movie really gets into people's psychology, and and the I think people that we all can relate to having gone to high school with. So, I don't know. I find this movie really interesting, and it is by far my favorite of these movies. Yeah. All right, moving on to Pretty in Pink, which came out February nineteen eighty six with a budget of nine million and uh, made forty point five million at the box office. So, did pretty well, although it was. Slightly the least well reviewed of the three movies we're talking about today. Um, a couple other nineteen eighty sixteen films were Stand by Me and Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
1: Wow, two yeah. movies in the same year for him.
0: Yep. Wow. So he didn't direct Pretty in Pink. He wrote Pretty oh, in that's Pink, right. but um, he was too busy to direct it. So he hired Howard Deutsch, who had cut trailers for the last two movies we talked about.
2: You're gonna you're gonna go out with this guy. I mean, is this you know, like, a date or? Yeah.
1: I mean, you like him. He's not
2: like the other guys. Seriously. No, no, no what? Oh, man. You really pissed me off, you know, because you know they shit all over everybody, including you. I just, I can't believe you'd be this stupid.
1: Who's shitting on me? I'm not going to let anybody shit on well, me.
2: He's just, he's going to use your ass and throw you away. God, I would have died for you. So what am I supposed to do? He asked me out and I like him. If I hate him because he's got money, just listen to me i hate him because he's got money that's the exact same thing as them hating us because we don't do you understand
0: and interestingly um molly ringwald was becoming really famous at this time because of the john hughes movies and hughes was annoyed by her fame he took it personally when uh, she had turned down a couple of things that he wanted her to do and they were not really on great terms um in this movie and after this uh, when he had died, they hadn't spoken in 20 years, and oh. same with Anthony Michael Hall, they, he was really strange for them. So what
1: year did he die?
0: 2009. So it was a that's while. Right. He did stop working oh for a long time in there.
2: That's fucking heartbreaking.
0: It's it really like, is, and they that's... worked
2: with him literally from childhood. Like they, he was one of the formative influences of their lives.
0: Yeah, he was known for being very hot and cold. So he could be, if you if you were on his good side, he would be very warm to you. He didn't like going to big parties, but he would have casts over to his house for dinner. You know, he'd invite p- people into his home, and so he was very warm to certain people. But if you did something that pissed him off, and even if it, you know, I think we can easily see it. Molly Ringwald's a busy person, you know, she should pursue the career she wants. She was also got shit to do, 17 y'all. or 18 at this time.
2: Right. So, right, right.
0: and he was mad that, you know, the things she had said to the press that weren't really that big of a deal, but he just felt that she was misrepresenting him to the press. And I think it was totally innocent on her part, but, you know, and he would just freeze people out like that. And that happened a lot to him and I think really affected his career. He was always working, but I think he had enough influence that he could have done a lot more. And yet, like, he also, he only directed eight films in this time and eventually just stopped directing because he didn't like the process. I mean, he didn't like the hours, but I think it was also, he took it too personally when the films didn't do well. Um, And so he ended up just writing movies. And the kind of movies he wrote in the 90s, were very different movies they were much more child oriented they were a lot more home like alone. the knockoffs of Curly home alone Sioux, right I
1: mean, Flubber,
0: Curly 101 dalmatian what baby's day out
1: oh wow Whoa.
0: these are i think movies that we would probably all agree are not oh, great shit. movies wow. and but,
1: like i mean well, home alone is classic Even Home Alone 2.
0: Absolutely. I think Home Alone was the movie that kind of broke him because he wrote it and didn't direct it, and then he wasn't the one who got all the credit for the movie. Right, because Columbus did. And it was so successful.
2: I mean, like, if anything, that string of titles you listed from the 90s, like, that reads to me like regression.
0: Absolutely. It's a childhood, right? Yeah.
2: Wow. So
0: I think that's a really interesting thing to frame kind of where he was at is he started sad, off like, with these so really sad. intimate stories of teenagers that were very grounded and then ended up with flubber which probably not i don't know yeah. i think i might have seen it at the time but i i can't recall but Ugh. i would guess that there's not a lot of emotional nuance in that movie all right so seth why don't you give us a plot synopsis of pretty in pink
2: uh there are some kids they're gonna go to a prom there's molly ringwald a she molly has, ringwald yeah she's a normal everyday molly ringwald Uh, She hasn't been asked to the prom. She hopes to be asked to the prom. There's Ducky, who is played by John Cryer and has been her friend since childhood. He is very, obviously, desperately in love with her.
1: That's putting it mildly. (laughs) That is
2: putting it very mildly. Um, And then there's also Andrew McCarthy, who is a super rich boy at school. Um, he hangs out with James Spader, who is also another super-rich boy at school. But Andrew McCarthy takes a liking to Miss Molly Ringwald, and she is from the wrong side of the tracks. And I mean that both figuratively and literally, where she is very, very poor uh, and lives with her father, Harry Dean Stanton. And because of her socioeconomic status, she is pretty much a, very much a real outcast at school. She doesn't really have many friends at school other than Ducky, um. So, yeah, they kind of have a tug-of-war love triangle between the Molly, the Ducky, and the McCarthy. Yeah,
0: and uh, Ebert gave this movie three stars as well, so he gave three stars to all of these movies and uh, compared Ringwald in this one to Elizabeth Taylor for her ability to break hearts and kind of suggested that she would go on to be uh, a big heartbreaker, which
2: Man, I, think I she was, just broke
0: I... all of our hearts by not <laughs> being in a lot of great movies after yeah. this. It was Deutsch's idea, the director, to cast Molly Ringwald. So good, good for him because she really <laughs> makes this movie. I think
1: yeah. she's
2: the heart and and soul of this movie.
1: But we all can agree that she looks like an old lady with her glasses and her sweater.
0: But I love it because it's showing her individuality. Like, yeah,
2: that's a big part of her charm for me. She's
0: the original hipster.
1: She looks like a grandma. <laughs> just can't get over it.
2: No, but see, like she is, she is a hipster fashion icon. Like it's very obvious like she has influenced hipster fashion. Yeah. So was Ducky actually. Both of yeah. them. I was Ducky very especially. I was
0: very surprised to watch this movie and see hipsters in 1986 because I was like <laughs> I didn't
2: I didn't know that was a thing. It's like cast your mind, imagine a world where most pop music has synthesizers in it and where hipsters exist. What a strange foreign land.
1: So like okay, I know I just said she looks like an old lady, but in, honestly, in general, though, she looks totally normal. And yet the girls in this movie make fun of the way she looks. And I'm Constantly. like, I'm like, she doesn't look any worse or better than anyone else. Like, I don't like in the world of this movie. I don't get like what they're looking at. Is it just because she has red hair? Like every every bitchy popular girl in this movie is big Big, blonde hair.
2: Well, so I think one trope of this is making... And is 25. Yeah,
1: and it's 25 years old. But I just, like, I didn't get it. I was like, what are they looking at? She's not wearing rags.
0: <laughs> well, she is supposed to be making her own clothes, and maybe because it was actually a Hollywood costume designer who made her clothes versus an actual <laughs> right. 17-year-old
2: girl. That's the thing. This movie really underlines and highlights the kind of divides that are created in the high school environment by class division and so i think a big part of the judgment of her character really just comes from the fact that everyone knows that she's poor um, but i also definitely think because they make a point of saying that she like assembles these outfits and is like a fashion maven and gets stuff from like thrift stores and i think chris you're exactly right that like having a hollywood fashion designer who's designing those thrift store outla- outfits makes the end results things that don't really look nearly as out of place or as constructed from cheap-ass clothing as they would look if done by a kid.
1: Yeah, honestly, if she walked into my house and was like, I made this, I would've been like, wow, awesome. Can when you,
2: you like... have been like, Molly Ringwald, can I have your autograph? <laughs> <laughs> I would mean, like, what are you doing in my house? I... How did you get in here, Molly? <laughs>
1: If I had a friend who made their own clothes, and I do have, fr- I'm like, make me something. That's great. Like,
0: <laughs> but I don't know if in 1986 that was maybe stranger. It's hard to judge right. the costumes of this movie because all of them are gonna look slightly strange to us. That's
2: also true. No, that's also true. I wonder about that. Um, like, if thrifting was as nearly as much of a thing, I don't know if it I don't was. No.
0: So I guess that's a good time to talk about her prom dress. Is it hideous? Do you guys think it's hideous?
1: I'm trying to remember it. It was tank obviously. It has, like,
0: a bit... It's It has, like, full-on oh. shoulders.
1: Uh like, in the 80s? It seemed like it fit in the 80s.
0: Yeah, I was trying to figure out if it was, like, 80s timeless. hideous or just hideous.
1: <laughs> it was time
2: full. <laughs> Everything was made of chiffon in the 80s. It's that time was, was one law.
0: week in 1986.
2: Yeah. That was a federal yeah. law. Reagan got it passed. It was the Chiffon Act.
0: Because Molly Ringwald did not like that dress, either. <laughs> she oh, was really? very against that dress, Um, but... She did not win that battle.
1: I have to ask, so where did the getting dressed, putting on makeup, like, to the start of the movie montage originate? Was In
0: it, <laughs> Pretty in pain, Was it I in think. Pretty in pain? I don't know that for sure, but yeah, I definitely did notice that, that it felt very much like a precursor to Devil Wears Prada
2: and all like kinds any, of movies. Any
1: movie where the woman is getting dressed in the beginning and putting on makeup well and we
2: also skipped over it but there is a fantastic dance montage in uh, breakfast club
1: oh there is yeah um
2: yeah i feel like john hughes was a, a filmmaking pioneer of the <laughs> fanciful montage he,
1: he may have started these montages. no i I, like, I think in
2: all likelihood he was one of the first
1: absolutely um, yeah yeah
2: in
0: this movie a lot like 16 candles there's a lot more of the guys than you might expect because we consider the women to be the protagonists uh, at least with 16 candles in this one not breakfast club but and he writes women so well but this movie kind of does again end up being about the boys there's Mm -hmm. the andrew mccarthy's drama with his friends and there's a lot of scenes just about him whereas if she was the true protagonist um you might not see quite so much of that and also Ducky Ducky kind of ends up hijacking this movie in a way that I think is better than 16 Candles I think it works a lot better but there's a lot of attention paid to him and I feel like she gets a little bit lost in that and I guess we'll talk about the ending but it's kind of it feels like an arbitrary choice on her part
2: well and that's that's why I said like this was a thing that would keep coming up for me is and where like I ultimately land on it is I think that John Hughes did write female characters very well But at the end of the day, it was still John Hughes writing them. And every character he fashioned, every dramatic arc he created, were all filtered through his white, heterosexual, male, conservative mindset. Um, And that's not to say that those things are ever, ever fully inescapable for filmmakers like that and it's also not to say that it ruined everything he touched no but i think but i think that was an inflection point on every single character both on the characters he created through molly ringwald and especially all the male characters but it also speaks i think to why the other female characters in these movies can be such accessories I do though think that he did a slightly better job in this w- with having Annie Potts as the side Absolutely. character. Yeah, I love Annie um, Potts. She and Harry Dean Stanton were two of the MVPs for me in this movie because mm-hmm. they really are a an emotional grounding rod for Molly Ringwald, um, and they provide family to her in in different ways. Obviously, um, but I, I I know I would agree with you though that Molly Ringwald in this movie definitely gets a bit lost, especially in comparison to Ducky.
1: I just don't think that her character is very interesting, and I don't like Andrew McCarthy's character. And I think that Ducky is, as, I think he's kind of annoying and definitely desperate, but he's interesting. Mm. Um, I, I, whenever. He's all those things at once. Whenever he was (laughs) on screen, I like paid more attention. And when it was back to Molly Ringwald or back to Andrew McCarthy, I, like, completely lost any um, any emotion in the movie. Like, I got bored, honestly, when Ducky wasn't on screen. As much as I think that, like, his character is kind of weird, I was still drawn towards his character. But everyone else, I was just like, I don't really care about what happens to them. Well, yeah. see,
2: like, for me, it would have been mo- so much more interesting if from the very beginning of it, there had been a swap where Andrew McCarthy had been her, like, BFFs for life and happened to be a rich person and like struggled against remaining her friend and all that and then Ducky was the weirdo who popped up in the record store one day, where Ducky was the weirdo who was at the public library sending her messages on the computer. I a am messages. Machine. Oh yeah. my God. So, yeah, it was like
0: so surprising in 1987. Amazing <laughs> yeah.
2: prototypical instant messages. But also, it was just so strange. Like, Andrew McCarthy doesn't really, we're not really given a grounding for why we should give a shit about Andrew McCarthy at all. And all of his charm, just his charming moments, just do not seem like they come organically from that character. Yeah, as good
0: as John Hughes is at writing female characters and male characters, he's not particularly good at writing scenes of chemistry between them. Yes. And I think that that happens in all of these movies, Mm -hmm. is that all of the romances end up feeling a little problematic. Sixteen Candles, I mean, they... He just... The only reason we know he likes her is because he keeps looking at her. But there's no chemistry between them. Yeah, they just
1: meet, and already he's, like, smiling at her. I just was like, I don't really care about the relationship, and I don't see why they like each other, and I didn't really see why it was such a big problem that she was poor because she didn't even seem that poor to me. Like, when I think of poor, I think she has to... I don't know, there's more struggle there. It didn't seem like there was a lot of struggle besides I have to make my own clothes and I have a part-time job.
0: There was in the scenes with the dad. I think the dad sold that, that really came well.
1: Through. And yeah. I
0: really did like that. I think both 16 Candles and this movie have really interesting dad relationships. There's one great scene in 16 Candles where mm-hmm. the dad, you know, says that's why they call them crushes and I think that's a really good line. It was a
1: great You're line. right. I do I like the scenes line. with her dad.
0: And this one has um
1: Doesn't he say like I'm sorry you have to talk about this with me? Yeah, yeah.
0: and she says, "I just want to let them know they didn't break me." To her dad, and that's I think a really important. I mean, that's not the kind of thing yeah. that I would have communicated. The reason she parents. goes to the prom that's I would alone. T- yeah, I love that relationship that they have together.
2: So I mean, shall we talk about the pivotal act of this film? The the last which one is sequence. That? <laughs>
1: What What do you mean? Yes, let's talk about like it. Like, which part of it?
2: Spoiler alert, as if we haven't revealed all of the plots of all these movies, um, she does not choose Ducky.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, no, <laughs> no Ducky. But the and, original he, and he ending... basically, like, gives her away. He's like, go, go, do it.
0: Fly, little Ringwald, <laughs> fly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the original ending, it actually was Ducky. And, yeah, that got changed, I think. Oh, test audiences didn't like it. so.
1: Fuck you, test audiences. I like the interesting guy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I guess we weren't in that audience uh, <laughs> as our three-year-old son I was at the not time.
1: consulted for the test.
0: <laughs> but, uh, but Hughes didn't really resist that because, again, he tends to go for those endings. In a way, it's surprising that that wasn't just the ending he went with in the first place. Right. But I guess the ducky ending would fulfill his uh, geek-gets-the-girl yeah. trope that he keeps going with. I guess not so much in Breakfast Club. I Geek writes a paper. I guess that's probably what I want Anthony Michael Hall and Ducky to get together. I think Ducky is pseudo gay anyway. He's
1: probably he's like the Anthony Michael Hall version of No, this. but he's
2: bi. bi. bisexuality did not exist in the eighties. I think he could probably turn Anthony
0: Michael Hall. So yeah. that's that's my alternate reality. Uh also pretty in pink what, I, what Pretty Butch in Pink.
1: So I'd never seen this movie before we watched it for the podcast, but I did know that Ducky did not get chosen. Like I, I didn't know that. Like too. that was already a thing in pop culture. That like, <laughs> yeah, that, that people were angry about. Like, why didn't you choose Ducky? You chose the boring rich guy and not the your best friend, who obviously would do anything for you. Well, and here's here's
2: where I land up on this. Um, This may be the most disappointing John Hughes ending to me, Um, for this reason, because as Chris was saying, there's really not much organic chemistry happening between her and Andrew McCarthy. Um, But then there's also a point in the movie where Ducky kind of realizes that, like, I love her with all of my heart and soul. She does not love me back. I wish... I think, and I think, a vastly, infinitely better ending for this movie would have been Molly Ringwald choosing neither of them to mm-hmm. so, like right. do the broadcast news ending, where the woman does not feel the need to have to end up with a man at the end. Right. And I think, if anything, this kind of is what we've been talking about uh, with John Hughes, just as a writer, kind of, it's a little bit immature to imagine that a woman couldn't possibly conceive herself as not needing a man. right? You know, I feel like, and even, even, even specifically for her character in that movie, I feel like you would've come away thinking of her as so much stronger, even if she's hurting, but like she would've been such a stronger and more confident character in, in all of her kind of personality if she had chosen neither of them.
0: Yeah, I think the endings for all of these movies are less problematic if you're not, if the music doesn't tell you that you're supposed to really like how this ended. Right. You know, because I think it is fairly realistic that a girl would choose choose any of of
2: these
1: guys. (laughs) Right, yeah. Would
0: would choose a, like, boring rich guy when she's 18. I mean, that does happen all the time. And the geek doesn't get the girl all the time. And that's fine, but I think it's trying to sell it as this really romantic thing that the movie isn't really backing up because it hasn't... Really built up their romance. It it does it just by showing them kind of like looking at each other and smiling, and that's about all you get from the romance. And in from these him movies. saying
2: "I love you," and like seriously, wh- Why are we supposed to give weight to that? Yeah, like, I didn't buy it. Yeah, it it just it made me sad.
0: And yeah, it. Like Sixteen Candles, I feel like these movies have very feminine titles like Pretty in Pink sounds like Mm -hmm. um, movies that's going to consider women a lot more than these movies ultimately do because they ultimately just come away with a masculine point of view of things. And it's a little disappointing, even though there are great moments. And I almost wonder how much we have to attribute specifically Molly Ringwald for making these characters as great as they are, because I think in all three movies, she's a great character and yet makes disappointing choices across the board.
2: Well, I feel like the plot makes disappointing choices at her. Yes. You know, like, right. I really, especially watching all of these together and watching Pretty in Pink, which I'd seen before with these other two movies. She brings most of the mojo in this universe. Like, she just really does.
0: And I also hate just how Ducky in the end just gets a random hot blonde who is Christy Swanson. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, her, she's listed as Duckette. Yeah. <laughs> Although oh, I have to say, like I do, like the moments where, um, in that moment when he looks over at her and then he looks at the camera and he like like raises his eyebrows and then he goes over to her, there's a Ooh, moment I don't like that. I li- I did like it and I liked it. There's a moment in Sixteen Candles, um, when Anthony Michael Hall looks at the camera. Yeah, but yeah. I don't like
0: that either.
1: I, I like it. Because I, I like don't think it. these
0: movies are about these guys. I, I mean, it's, it's I like the them looking one. directly at John Hughes. I feel like they're making eye contact with th- John th- Hughes through the lens. I think it's just the
1: director's just like, style. Like, I, I like that he throws that in, like, three-fourths into the movie or the end of the movie. And it's just this one little moment. And I don't know. I like when he breaks the fourth wall, which obviously did like a lot his... more in Ferris Bueller.
2: Yeah, yeah I was going to say. I feel like the Ferris Bueller wall breaking is so much better. Whereas um, the glass
0: I... breaking in Breakfast Club.
2: I like Ducky because he is an annoying shit, and because he is also just so deeply in love. Like, I I like that, the kind of, like, twin sides of that character. Um, Another fun cameo in that film? Gina Gina Gershon! Gina Gershon! Yeah! I'm glad we all (laughs) noticed it. Yeah, I did a double-take. She's
0: she's hard to miss. (laughs) She
2: is difficult (laughs) to miss. Oh, my God. And even harder to forget.
0: Yeah, I, that ending with Christy Swanson just... I mean, it's almost the same ending as in Anastasia, where there's just a random female <laughs> bat who flies by and they fly off together. I mean, sh- this... <laughs> It again it just it's kind of speaks to this thing of like John Hughes treating women as rewards. It's like, "Oh, here you go, Ducky. Here's a hot woman." Right. And it's like there's no reason to think that Christy Swanson and John Cryer would end up together except and for it's the end of the movie. Isn't yeah. John
1: isn't Ducky in love with Molly Ringwald?
0: Apparently not anymore because he's got Buffy. Yeah, that's yeah.
2: A, again, like it's uh, it's could not have been more tacked on if they had like a set dresser come out with a hammer and, like, a fake donkey tail and, like, nail it to the wall. Like, it was...
0: I think Christy Swanson was the set dresser. They're like, eh, you'll do. You've got breasts. (laughs) All right, so I think that wraps up our discussion of the movies themselves. But uh, we did discuss a bit what happened with Hughes, which is kind of a sad story. Um, But although I did end up seeing a lot of his 90s movies without really feeling a lot of personality with them. As for Molly Ringwald, um, she did a couple of other teen kind of movies. She did a movie opposite Robert Downey Jr. called The Pickup Artist in 87 with Dennis Hopper and what? Harvey Keitel.
2: What?
0: And Lorraine Bracco. Whoa! So that, and uh, in it, Vanessa Williams plays Girl with Dog. Oh. So uh, that might be a winner to check out sometime. <laughs> yeah. but, um, and she has worked consistently, so it's not like she really disappeared off the face of the map. But she's her choices have been a bit sporadic. She was on an ABC family show, The Secret Life of Teenagers. The the Secret
1: Life of the American Teenager. Okay,
0: yeah. So that might be her most prolific role and that's one that comments on, I think, her own status as a teen star. Now she's the mom. And I think a lot of her roles do play off of that. She was... Had a brief role in Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which was written and directed by Kevin Williamson, obviously, as kind of an homage there. And she was in Not Another Teen Movie. Which is
1: one of my favorite movies. I'm not even joking. I think as far as the parody movies go, it's the only funny one. And it's actually really funny. When I was watching Pretty in Pink, I watched half of it. Then I watched Not Another Another Teen Movie, which I have on DVD and I have since it came out. Like... (laughs) When was that? Like 2001 or two? And then I finished Pretty in Pink and it's just I can't recommend it enough if you do like John Hughes movies or like teen movies in general because they make fun of American Pie and Cruel Intentions and Mm -hmm. just that whole genre of teen movie and I honestly think it's hilarious.
0: Yeah, I would have to watch it again. I haven't seen it since it came out. I don't remember loving it but I I would be willing to check it out again. And so in the time since more recently Ringwald was in Gem and the Holograms which probably wasn't a great movie. Isn't
2: Molly Ringwald like a full-time mommy now? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like she just like wanted to make a family. I mean, she
0: definitely, she still acts a lot. She yeah. was in uh, King Cobra, which just came out this year. Oh, which really? Also had oh, Alicia Silverstone. So oh, I think wow. there was some kind of comment on teen stars there, although not really Ducky a great sunny. film. <laughs> and she also released a jazz album recently. Really? A book of short stories and a self-help book, kind of a women, like, how to Cook and Put Your Makeup On book called Getting the Pretty Back.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so she's, she's turned to other, yeah, she's, yeah, she's a, busy, a busy well busy Well, we
1: really like her in these movies. Like, I think we can all agree that she's actually a really great actress, was a great uh, teenage actress with a lot of natural talent.
0: Yeah, can you guys think of any actress, any teen actress who was quite as good at being like a relatable every girl? I can't, I was trying to think of someone and I couldn't come up with an actress who had as much charisma. I mean,
1: I don't know uh, as much charisma, but I think like currently you might think like uh, Shailene Woodley, is that her name Mm -hmm. from the Divergent series that she was in the Descendants? I think maybe she's...
2: She never strikes me as an every woman. Like uh, maybe that's as much the characters that she tends to play as anything else. Mm -hmm. Because I was thinking like, you know, like we were talking about Natalie Portman earlier and I feel like Natalie Portman's had just tremendously obvious uh talent.
1: But I think she never played the everyday girl. Exactly.
2: That's I, I yeah. Chris, I don't I don't think I can like think of an actor who specifically played like roles that were supposed to be relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and did it with nearly the you same disbelievability as I'll,
1: she did. I will, I'll say Claire Danes on My Soul Called Life, although that's kind of dating myself as well. But
0: so, Yeah, I would go with that as maybe the closest c- comparison.
1: I never I never watched that show. So that's but, something we should do on the podcast.
0: Although that was just one <laughs> role, so she didn't carry right. it on really, I guess maybe Romeo and Juliet you could kind of argue yeah. as a teen Ooh. role, but um, yeah, I don't know that she carried it as far as Molly Ringwald did and... Yeah, Molly Ringwald just kind of cemented herself as a teen actress because she wasn't in anything as an adult that has nearly the iconic power Mm -hmm. of anything that she was in as a teen. And that's obviously not probably a conscious choice that she made, but it's interesting that she's almost like frozen in time as this teen star. And when we think of her, we still think of her at that age. And Mm -hmm. it's almost like someone like James Dean, but he died. Right. (laughs) So it's interesting. And I think she has also pretty much stayed out of the press. I, f- I feel like that's an interesting thing. Is she's not someone that paparazzi would ever hound, you know, she just seems like a normal person in a way that a lot of, the- none of the Brat Pack, I don't think had that. They right. all had very larger than life kind of scandals at the time and were all dating each other. And, she- and let's be
2: honest, they were known as egotistical shitheads. Yeah.
0: And I don't think that yeah. was her, you know, she pretty much stayed out of the limelight and. You know, just did her job and went home. I I don't think she was into the partying scene at all. So Yeah, no, and,
2: and I met her once in real life and she is like super nice and the most normal person.
0: So that is our show on Molly Ringwald and her uh three movies in the teen trifecta. When she were young. <laughs> So, our next episode will be about train spotting. And thank you for listening.
2: And that's all the Ringwald we have time for here on the When We Were Young podcast. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio, studio in Los Angeles, California. And To reiterate Chris's point from the top of the show, if you've enjoyed this and the fact that we bring it to you for free, here are a couple ways that you can help us do more of it. You can subscribe to us on the iTunes. You can leave us a review on the iTunes and rate us a nice, delicious five stars. You can follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash www.yshow. You can tweet us at www.yshow. You can contribute to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash when we were young. And you can email us any suggestions or feedback you have for the show at www.yshow at gmail.com. And for now, I've been Seth. I'm still Becky. I never was, Chris
0: I've been lying to you the whole time (gasps) And I've chosen Christy Swanson Team
1: Ducky (laughs) Don't you
2: Try to pretend It's my feeling
0: We'll win in the end I won't Harm you Or touch your defenses Vanity And security Sí